0: Good evening and welcome to the Dog Radio preview for UFC on ESPN 22, also known as UFC Vegas 24, UFC Fight Night Whitaker versus Gastelum, whatever you want to call it. It is the card happening this Saturday at the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. For Dog Radio, I'm your host, Ben Duffy. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen the executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network and the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network, as well as a contributor for SureDog.com. Keith, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm excellent, brother. How you doing? I'm doing really well.
0: I just want to throw out a few general observations about this card before we jump in. So we're going to be talking about a 12-fight card. There are 13 fights scheduled, but as of a couple hours ago on Wednesday night when we're recording this, Ricardo Hamos fell out of his scheduled matchup with uh, Bill Algio. Algio is not officially off the card, so the UFC might be looking for a last-minute replacement to fight him, but we certainly won't be talking about it because I doubt they're going to find it in the next hour to hour and a half. So in in throwing this number out at you, I'm talking about the 12 fights that we know about, so 24 total fighters. Of the 24 fighters on the card, eight have losing records in the UFC. <laughs> Oh, man. Another five have 500 records in the UFC, and that's not even counting the three who are debuting and are 0-0. On this entire fight card, there are only eight fighters with winning records in the octagon. (laughs) There are only two fights on the whole card between two fighters that are above 500 in the UFC. One, obviously, is the main event between Robert Whittaker and Kelvin Gasolom. The other is between heavyweights Alexander Romanov and Juan Espino. Both of whom are just two and zero oh in the UFC. Yeah. Beyond that, I mean, you, when when you're the UFC, you're putting on as many cards as you are, as many as you have to, to keep up your obligations to uh, your broadcast partners. A lot of cards are just going to be whatever you've got. Almost 600 fighters on roster who need x number of fights per year, so you expect every card to have at least a couple fighters who are on two, three fight winning streaks are you know on probably fighting for their jobs. But to me, it was it was kind of shocking to see so many of them concentrated in one place here. For those who don't, you know, who are new to listening to us or don't haven't heard our post fight recap shows, just know that we have a segment called the cut list and it might be extensive after this one.
1: Yeah, I was sitting there thinking, I'm looking at the roster trying to figure out who's the eight guys with a winning record. I'm like, does Jeremy Stevens have a Win record? Jeremy Stevens has a losing record in the UFC. Yes. The That's funny... surprising to me. I, I I knew it wasn't a great record, but I was surprised it was a losing record.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we just talked last week, or if we didn't, you know, I, I talked on other radio shows about kind of what a cool stat it is that Jim Miller is 37 years old and just had his 37th fight in the UFC. Jeremy Stevens is 34, and this is his 34th. The difference wow. is Jeremy Stevens is below 500 <laughs> where Jim Miller even all the rough times he's been through is above 500.
1: Yeah cuz cuz Jeremy Stevens came in the UFC he had like a rough start then he went on a run and then he had a rough finish. So yeah right. I, I definitely I get that. Yeah, I'm looking at the card and we're talking about like name value. I'm saying like <laughs> who's the three biggest names not counting the, the main event and it's probably Arlowski it's still at this point Jeremy Stevens well, and it, believe it or not, it, it might be the former title challenger just Kapene. That might yep. be our top three.
0: And I mean, really, Andre Arlovsky, he's just kind of what you slot in when you can't get Parker Porter.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. The yeah, some, somehow, Chase Herman, somehow Chase Sermon somehow Chase Sherman loses Parker Porter and gets replaced with former world champion, you know, someday UFC U- Hall of Famer Andre Orlovsky. <laughs>
0: That, more than anything, is a sign that that Arlovsky probably needs to hang it up. After all the things he's done, just all the legendary things he's done, and, you know, what a part of the history of that division he's been through the good and the bad. I mean, he's had some, like, terrible, humiliating losses. He's had some incredible wins. To know that he is just now interchangeable with Parker Porter. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. You know what's funny? I'm looking at this card and what imagine if something happens to the main event from now until Saturday and the main event got canceled. Imagine <laughs> imagine recapping with the main event and of Jeremy Stevens on a four or five fight losing streak versus Tjaycar Close who I, you know, he's got a decent record in the UFC but yeah, oh. he's not in our he's not in our top 15. Imagine if we had Jeremy Stevens moving up a weight class on a big losing streak in Dirk Har close as our main event. I mean, what else? I mean, they they actually might have to throw Arlovsky in the main event.
0: I I think they probably would, just as the recognizable name value. I think you're probably right.
1: You know what? Just screw it. Throw uh, Romanov versus Espino, 13-0 and versus 10-1, and ultimate fighter winner.
0: Oh, both so undefeated
1: in the UFC. That's that's man.
0: see that. That's the thing right there. They'd have to go back to giving the cars nicknames UFC undefeated. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and it's Romanov versus Espino.
1: <laughs> no, Espino has a loss in his career. Oh, but like,
0: sorry, in the UFC, like they're both two and in the UFC, yeah. in the UFC is, is like the best they can they can do. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, a, a little bit of laughter at the expense of this card, but. While we laugh, this is deadly serious business for all 24 people we're going to talk about, so we're going to give them as much time, uh, effort, and analysis as we possibly can. Anything else you want to say before we uh, jump into the undercard here?
1: No, I mean, the people have been waiting long enough. Let's get into it. All
0: right. The UFC Vegas 24 prelims start with a bantamweight matchup featuring Tony Gravely and Anthony Burchak. Gravely, the 29-year-old, is 20-6 overall, he is one and one since joining the UFC out of Dana White's contender series season three back in twenty nineteen. He lost his UFC debut last January to Brett Johns came back last November with a split decision win over Geraldo de Freitas. He will face Burchak the thirty four year old is sixteen and seven overall. He is two and three in the UFC across two different stints with the promotion. He went uh, two and two with the UFC back in. 2014, 2015, was let go for a while. He went through Ryzen, Combate Americas, uh, LFA. He returned to the UFC last November and lost to Gustavo Lopez via rear naked choke. Uh, perhaps in recognition of of their recent results, Gravely is a strong favorite uh, right now. He is minus 300, minus 310 or so, where you can get Burchak at plus 250 or plus 255 on the comeback. Keith, uh, who do you like in this one, and how do you see it playing out?
1: Well, you know, you talk about Gravely. Gravely's guy. Uh, he he's a, he's a true veteran. He's has twenty six fights. He's kind of battled all over the regional scene for a while. But I'm very familiar with him because at one point he had a nice stint here in, in Rhode Island uh, with CES. As you said, he has twenty. I think it's twenty six, twenty seven professional fights. He has six losses. The thing that stands out to me about his losses is that all of his losses have come against quality opposition. Like he hasn't. You know, you have that guy that had that many wins, and then all of a sudden you look and there's like, who the hell's that guy? Who's who's Bobby? <laughs> who's Bobby Brown? You know? Yeah. So he, he. I would say he's a fairly one-dimensional fighter. He still needs to improve on his feet. He lacks head movement. He's been rocked many times, but. On the feet, he's a brawler. He throws big shots, he springs into the pocket, unloads with fury, uh flurries, and he likes being in the pocket because he wants to be he feels comfortable in that closer range. And that's because of his wrestling background. This is a strong wrestler, he's a D1, NCAA wrestler. I've said this before when we took, broke down gravely. I he has that second level uh wrestling where he when he drives through the hips, he's able to get to the second level. What I mean by that is I always, when I try to explain this to kids I've coached in wrestling, uh, when a sprinter, they you talk about the sprinter with the second level, you really talk about when they talk about the NFL wide receiver combine running, it's when you get out the box and then you hit that second speed, like almost like increase that speed. That's what he's really good at. He's good at driving through hips. Though if he misses the shot, he's comfortable underneath, and that's actually bad. He'll get sprawled out on and eat some hammer fists because of it. But if he's on top, he's heavy top pressure. He's been accused of having lay and pray moments, which he has, especially when he was a champion of CS. There was some some boring matches. But, you know, if he's on top, he can he can land some hammer fists, some punches. And if a scramble ensues, he's got a pretty good ability to take you back. Now, move over to Berchak. Uh This is his, you know, he's on his second stint in the UFC, as you mentioned. I don't I don't think he was a UFC fighter before. I think he's a worse fighter now. Uh, he doesn't do anything spectacular. He also is a bit of a brawler. He's wild, loads up on everything. I would say his calf kicks are pretty solid. He's added that since he's been fighting. Like I watched his one of his fights in Combate, and he really targeted the calf kicks, which, you know, every fighter at this point should be doing. But the rest of his striking is pretty mediocre. He keeps his chin high. And he can't even count on that chin because he's been blasted before, and his wrest his defensive wrestling's week, He's been taken down. Uh, his last fight in his return to the UFC against Gustavo Lopez, Lopez took him down easily. Uh, but he can get some takedowns himself. But I would say it's against non wrestlers. Like I would be shocked if he, you know, was able to. I'll wrestle Tony Gravely. To me, I think this card has a lot of very evenly matched fights where we'll have we'll probably disagree on them. I would be surprised if we disagree on this one. To me, this is a pretty easy call. Burstjack has struggled to be, you know, with takedown defense before. Gravely is going to take him down. He's going to grind him out for 15 minutes. Give me Gravely by decision.
0: I noticed the same thing that you did about Gravely's record, where there are no bad losses there. They're all to people who are have either made it to the ufc and have done pretty well or guys like patchy mix and uh, ricky bandejas who were over in bellator in one of bellator's best divisions and actually doing uh, really well uh, he also has some good wins on his record you mentioned that he had a, a run you know through ces where he was pretty successful but he came into the ufc on a six or seven fight win streak and he'd beaten some people in there like uh, draco rodriguez who you know was in the ufc Uh, Ray Rodriguez, the guy he beat on Dana White's Contender Series, I mean, he made it to the UFC. He's 0-2 in the UFC, but like, like even the guy he beat on Dana White's Contender Series very badly made it to the UFC. He has a strong, a good strength of schedule for a guy who's under 30, has over 25 fights. Uh, I'm pretty – like I'm fairly high on him as a prospect, but I'm very gratified that you broke down his basic offense the way you did because my note – about him as I was watching uh, his fights was he wants to be a wrestle boxer, but currently he's a get boxed and wrestle guy like he clearly wants to come in, throw like some great punches and then hit a takedown when he's gotten the guy rocked. But usually it's either just a mess or he gets rocked and then hits the t- the takedown.
1: Ben, you, just to correct before someone kills us, you said he's 0-2 in the UFC. He's actually 1-1 in the UFC.
0: No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, Ray Rodriguez is 0-2 in the US. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think you're
1: talking about. No, sorry.
0: Gravely, Gravely's one-on-one. One. You are the uh, guy. Why would I say that? <laughs> uh, I so I, I'm high on, on Gravely as uh, a prospect. I think he's done it the right way. He's got a lot of fights coming up. Or I like coming up to where he is, he has had a lot of fights. Uh, there I mean, there's still time that he could develop into a much more polished striker than he is right now. I don't know where he stacks up in this division right now, but I do know that Anthony Burchak is a very suitable kind of. This isn't, it's not a squash match, but it is, it's a matchup that's winnable for Gravely in that it serves his strengths and it doesn't particularly exploit his weaknesses. Uh, Yeah, like Burchak likes to take people down. He is not taking Gravely down. Gravely does get lazy on the shot. You mentioned that he gets hammer-fisted a lot. Also, he had, like, his uh, guillotine loss to Patchy Mix was just pure, I'm a wrestler, and I sometimes forget that in MMA, a dude can just grab my neck when I shoot if I leave my head outside. Uh, I'm not picking him to do any of those things against Anthony Burtak. and even if he does, I'm not sure Burtak is the guy to take advantage of it. I'm not going to pick the finish just because Burtak is tough, Uh, just tough, durable guy that sounds like a kind of backhanded compliment but i really do mean it about Burtak. he's not an easy guy to finish and thus far most of gravely's finishes have been kind of like death by a thousand cuts like beating up a dude for four rounds uh you know like with mild ground and pound he's not going to have the time to do that to Burtak, and i don't know if it it would even work so give me gravely by a lopsided decision as well we stay in the bantamweight division but do head across to the other locker room as zara fern welcomes josiane nunez to the ufc fern the 34 year old fighting out of france is six and four overall she is 0 two since joining the ufc in fall of 2019 she uh, lost her debut at featherweight to megan anderson on the ufc 243 card you may remember that card as the one where the UFC brought in two bright, shiny, featherweight prospects in Fairn, and uh, what was the other girl's name?
1: Norma Dumont.
0: Norma Dumont, yes, both of whom lost badly and then promptly tried to drop to Bantamweight. Uh, Welcome to featherweight life in, in the UFC. Anyway, she bounced back from that with another, to be fair to her, brutal matchup against Felicia Spencer, uh, where she succumbed to ground and pound in the in the first round, so not a great look so far uh, for uh, Zara Faren, but she is dropping to bantamweight and she is meeting Josie Nunes. The 27 year old uh, Northern Brazilian is seven and one overall. Uh, she fought most recently in Katana fight, which is not as exciting as it sounds. It is just a regional promotion in Brazil. I watched it and was very disappointed to find no katanas in evidence. The odds do slightly favor Nunes. Uh, She is out there at minus 125 or so, despite this being her debut. And uh, Farron is available at even money or even plus 105. Uh, Nunes, I mean, she is a... I, she, she's a striker by, by trade. She's, you know, uh, Muay Thai-schooled, uh, Muay Thai-influenced striker. She is, uh, how do I put this? She is, I'll, I'll call her stocky. Like, I, I'm not saying she's fat. She is just, she's got that Jessica Andrade at uh, 135 build, where she is broad, like she clearly has muscle. She has a good bit of explosion. She's not a refined striker. Uh, she's kind of like, and I'm not saying she's Chris Cyborg, I'm not saying she's Vanderlei Silva, but she's got that early shoot box where you can tell, I do Muay Thai in training, but mostly I just come out and brawl and try to take your head off in fights. And, you know, the most technical thing I do is I grab a really nice clinch and throw some knees at you. Uh, Zara Farron's best route to victory here is going to be to try to... Get her hands on Nunez and get her to the ground before Nunez starts doing tie clinch things to her. And I don't have much faith in Faren. I'm even just hoping she successfully makes 135, unlike Dumont, who has now failed miserably twice. But with two fighters that are. Josie Nunez is a somewhat unknown quantity. Zara Farron is a known quantity and just not a very good one. I actually am going to go with the more experienced uh, or not more experienced, but more experienced at the UFC level fighter in Zara Farron. Give me Zara Farron by ugly decision where she probably just gets takedowns and manages to log enough time there before they get stood up that she's not in the danger zone too long on the feet. Wow,
1: that's an upset. Zara Farron is actually a slight underdog. Uh, This fight, this fight is ugly. This is, I don't think either girl is UFC level. Now, I actually, when I was breaking out the skill sets, I actually view this uh, a little differently. Uh, I think Nunez might actually have the advantage on the feet and Fern might have uh, the advantage, at least in the distance kickboxing. Uh, That's because Zan is, she's very tall and she's dropping down to 135, so she should be even taller. She's long, she's aggressive on the feet. She works behind a jab. She actually, in if you go back and look at her fight against Felicia Spencer, she was piecing Felicia Spencer up on the feet. I mean, it was briefly, um, and when you know Felicia Spencer took it down, it was all over. Uh, she she avoids strikes. She she holds her ground, but she she leans straight back. I would rather have her kind of lean forward and like bobbing side to side. I think she'd do well there. She also loses power because she throws a lot of arm punches. So she doesn't have too much sting. But when, if she can land at full when she extends her arm, she does, she's got pretty good power there. Her ground game is terrible, though. Uh, I haven't seen the offensive wrestling that you're talking about. M- maybe she could get some offensive. But I've seen her, t- her takedown defense, and it is god-awful. There's no get-up game. There's no submission defense. Spe- uh, I think about Spencer... Also, Megan Anderson both smoked her on the ground. And Megan Anderson is not known for her ground game. And she had no sub- submission defense. Megan Anderson set up a triangle choke on her. Now move over to uh, Nunes. I'm not going to pretend like I've seen too much film on her. It, it's it's tough watching these shaky camera films of Brazilian fighters. It's, it's tough. What I've seen, Southport, very aggressive on the feet. Throws wild. Kind of favors... Power over technique kind of has a Vandalay Silva style to it where it's it's wild. And there's a reason why that Vandalay Silva style doesn't work anymore. There's a reason why Vandalay was <laughs> successful in early 2000s, not now. She has power, though. She has six knockout losses. I also saw the clinch game you are talking about. I, I think on the feet that'll be her best weapon if she can get in the, that clinch game. But I, what I saw on the ground of her, it wasn't that good either. Bad takedown defense, struggled to get back up. I did see her one fight get in a really bad position. Uh, the girl had her back. And she, she fought through the su- the submission attempts. So I liked that. It's like she showed some composure. And when she got on top, she had it blitzing, kind of ventilate silver, go crazy on top, ground and pound. As far as prediction goes, I'm not very high on either. I think Farn is a better striker, I think yeah it doesn't look good for Nunez uh from a distance fight, but if she can close a distance, I think she can win that. I'm not confident in Nunez's ground game, but it looks like she's probably taken one full b j j class, which I don't know if Farn has <laughs> uh Farn is bigger though, and she's faced a better competition and the, we're we're a lot of our what we're judging on Farn is going against... And say what you want about the UFC featherweight division, like Spencer and, Egan, and Megan Anderson are two of the top girls in that division worldwide. So she's faced really good competition in her run. Yeah, I thought I was going to be the only one to take Farn. I'm, I think she's surprised it and finds a way to stay on the feet. And I'm going to just take her physical tools of being longer and rangier. I think she catches Nunes. I think she's going to put her out. So I'm going to give me Farn and give me Farn by first round. KO. That's my first upset of the night.
0: Next up, it is Lightweights, as Austin Hubbard welcomes Dakota Bush to the Octagon. Hubbard, the 29-year-old fighting out of Elevation Fight Team, is 12-5 and overall. He is 2-3 in the UFC since joining out of uh, Legacy Fighting Alliance back at the end of 2018. He fought most recently last August at UFC on ESPN 15, losing to Joe Selecki by Rear Naked Choke in the first round. He will be taking on the man who wants us to call him Harry Bush, and I will do no such thing, but he is a 26-year-old fighting out of Missouri who is 8-2, also an LFA standout, uh, and fought most recently uh, icing Austin Clem in January at LFA 98 in under a minute with a head kick and then a couple of coffin nails on the ground. Ah, uh, Bush is the slight underdog here. You can get him at plus one hundred and fifty or so. Uh, Hubbard is minus one hundred and seventy-five as the favorites. Uh, Keith, who do you like in this one? Uh,
1: of of the three fights that we've broke down so far, I would say this one I'm I'm looking forward to most. You know, Austin Hubbard's had moments in the UFC where he's looked good. He's also been extremely inconsistent, and and Bush is Harry Bush. Is not uh, not a bad prospect, not a bad signing. I'll start with Hubbard. Hubbard's fairly well rounded. I don't see major holes in his game. But that said, I don't see anything great. Like I don't see anything really good about his game. And if I look at his last fight against Joe Selecki, all of a sudden Hubbard looked terrible in that fight, which was really surprising to me. Now he's big for the weight class. Uh, he's he's a very muscular guy. He actually put on muscle in his last fight. They talked about that in the broadcast. He's fairly athletic. He's got some good snap on his on his shots, and that's because he's heavy on his front leg. He really leans into it. But we've talked about this million. Th- I feel like a million times when you're heavy in your front leg, you're also wide open to leg kicks, like Conor McGregor. He he likes to. Th- he has kind of a little unorthodox style to his striking. He fights kind of long. He throws. He likes kicks down the middle. He likes stepping knees. He avoids strikes by backing straight up, which is I feel like a broke record. I say it all the time. He's an underrated wrestler. Like I would never call Austin Hubbard a wrestler, but I would say he's adequate there. Um he out wrestled Kyle Preppoli in his fight, which was uh I don't know if that's matters much, but to out wrestle him was was impressive. Now move over to Dakota Bush, he's your classic wrestler boxer. Pretty light on his feet. He really steps in and shots himself. Which is surprising for someone who uses as much movement movements he again. He's good at, you know, standing on the outside and suddenly crashing the pocket. He targets calf kicks, which is a great weapon to have. He had an incredible high kick in his last fight. Good entries on his in his wrestling. Heavy top pressure. He likes to advance to better position. Good ground and pound. He's got four submission victories. It's a big step up in competition for Bush. That said, Hubbard looks so bad in his last fight that I don't have a lot of confidence in him. So I'm going to go with another upset, and I think Bush can get some takedowns. I think he has the advantage in the power on the feet, and I think he wins his UFC debut. So give me another upset pick. That's my second upset pick of the night.
0: Hey, uh, very bold right out of the gate is Keith Schillen. I, I feel what you're putting down there. I'm not quite ready to take that plunge. I agree that Hubbard looked miserable against uh, Selecki, but since then I feel a little better about Selecki just I mean in doing what he had to do against Jim Miller even if the fight was completely dismal to watch. Uh that gave me a little more faith in him and certainly you can understand why Hubbard came into that fight with what looked like probably 5 or 10 extra pounds of muscle on him because his two previous losses had been to Davi Hamos and Mark Madsen, both of whom are, I mean, Madsen's an Olympic wrestler. Hamos is a decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, but both of them are top position grapplers built like tanks. And I'm sure Hubbard was just like, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. And he hit the weights. It backfired against Selecki. Selecki was just much smoother and more nimble on the ground. And if I think, I think, And I worry that if that fight had not ended in three minutes or whatever, Hubbard might have had gas tank problems going forward. Because he was already a pretty burly uh, lightweight. That gives me pause against uh, Bush because, uh, like, Bush has has shown that at least at the LFA level, he does have uh, plenty of gas for three rounds. You know, I... The more the more I think about your pick, the more I want to agree with it because I can see Bush kind of like Selecki just being uh quicker and slicker once it hits the floor and just you know taking Hubbard's back and, and choking him out. That's aside from the the crazy head kick uh back in January, Dakota Bush's thing was uh you know, like either taking his opponent down or pancaking a takedown attempt, spinning to the back you know, pounding him on, on him a little bit and then uh, taking the rear naked choke. That was what he, I mean, that was basically his last four wins were all that way. But he, he also had a couple of flat performances in, Lf, in LFA. Like before he got this fight booked, I was thinking he was a guy that might be ready for the contender series, you know, sometime this year. And all of a sudden he's in the big show. I'm, I, I'm counting on that you know, that where Hubbard has already been fighting fighters at this level for a while to kind of show out. Uh, Give me Hubbard by decision, but it's by no means a confident pick, and you might be looking very, very right in just a few minutes. The prelims of of UFC on ESPN 22 now take us up to the middleweight division, where Bartosz Fabinski takes on Gerald Mearshart. Fabinski, 34 years old from Poland, is 15 and four overall. He is three and two in the UFC, or he is four and two if you want to count his fight against Darren Stewart at Cage Warriors 113 that the UFC booked just as COVID-19 was sort of closing everything down and was essentially a fight between two European UFC fighters on a different colored canvas he will be taking on Mearshart, the 33 year old stalwart of rufus sport is 31 and 14 in his very prolific career he is an even 6 and 6 in the ufc uh had a bit of a tough 2020 he won his first uh, fight of the year against uh Der- against deron win back at ufc 248 then lost to Ian Heinish and Hamzat Shamayev in a total of about 90 seconds in his uh, last two fights of the year. So it is Mirchart looking to bounce back. Uh, Mirchart is just a slight underdog here. He is available at even money. I even see him around plus 105, where uh, Fabinski is minus 125 as the slight favorite. Gerald Mirchart is... He is... I think a super overachiever like, and I'm saying that about a guy who's six and six in the UFC, but for mere for his natural level of talents and athleticism, getting 10 plus fights in the UFC and winning half of them, I think is a super example of overachievement. He is a minus athlete. Like he's a big, strong guy. But, in, it, like, if you put all the middleweights in the UFC in a decathlon and tested, like, their high jump, long jump sprint, he's coming in close to dead last. You know, just – He'd probably slow, beat Sam Alvey. Sam Alvey, who falls very much into the same category but <laughs> is, you know, several years older and has even more mileage on him. But, yeah, absolutely, right up that same alley. Uh, you know, if Ed Herman wants to drop back down to 185, <laughs> he can join him. It, he, those guys –
1: like i, I just... I'd, let, I'd love to see like Deron Wynn doing like uh uh what's the what the Paul vault? I'd love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, why am i more interested in talking about uh mid-level middleweights doing decathlon than breaking down this card?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh <clears throat> having said that, like um Meerhart it's uh most of the time, at least until recently, even against a superior fast twitch athlete, he has been able to neutralize them. Just you know, he has a striking game that is that has been built around not overexposing his chin. You know, I mean he lived in the danger zone with uh, Eric Anders for three rounds and never got touched. He lived in the danger zone with Kevin Holland for uh uh three rounds and you know, was never in like serious danger of being finished. Uh, He put away Trevin Giles. Uh, You know, Uh, his best strength is definitely his ground game, you know, odd for a Rufus Sport guy, but uh, he's not great at takedowns. Like his entries are slow, but he's good at ending up on top in scrambles. He's pretty good at uh, takedowns from the clinch just by virtue of being a strong guy. And that's going to be his route to victory here against uh, against Fabinsky. Uh, Fabinsky, you know, he just moved up from welterweight. I mean, I guess it is like uh, two years ago at this point, but he came to the UFC uh, as as a welterweight. The tail of the tape is going to say the same for both guys. They're probably both going to be listed six foot one, one eighty six, or whatever it is. But Mearshart will be the bigger, stronger guy in the cage uh Fabinsky could certainly you know catch him with something on the feet that's what he did in Europe early in his career he's not shown himself to be able to do that at the UFC level so I don't think he's going to do a uh, Shamayev or even a Heinish type things to Mirchard so even though Mirchard's the slight underdog here I have him pretty straightforwardly in this fight I, I don't th- think Fabinsky's going to have much for him he's not going to be able to threaten him on the feet Mearshart will be able to get him to the ground and from there it's it's all uh like it it's all Mearshart. If this does happen to go deep into the fight, Mearshart, despite being the bigger guy, has a, a good gas tank. But give me Gerald Mearshart by second round submission.
1: All right. So yeah. This, to me. That's one of the easier fights to break down. Now you talk about Shard. I agree with everything you said about him, like being an overachiever. He's well rounded, but he's not great at anything. I would call him like a middle of the pack middleweight. Is like the ceiling for him. Like he'll never be a top twenty guy. He's he's gritty. He's crafty. He has all those things you talk about when you talk about a you know veteran. Uh, but. You talked about his offensive wrestling, but I think his defensive wrestling is terrible because he looks to go to jujitsu. What we've talked about before, he has like that Dustin Poirier thing where he's looking for submissions to defend entries instead of sprawling, instead of stuffing the head, instead of hipping in, instead of uh, you know looking for a switch, instead of whatever you know whizzering. But he does that. Because he's crafty on the ground, he can get a submission off of his back. Uh, the one thing that worries about me is he's getting up there in age, and he got knocked out brutally in his last two fights. So that doesn't give me a lot of confidence. Now, of course, like Shemayov was his last fight. Like Shemayov would probably beat both these guys at the same time. Now, move over to Fabinsky. He's a very one dimensional fighter when I break down him. He, he strikes to simply close the distance. He wants to wrestle. He's got good entries. He can also, you know, besides getting on your hips and taking it down, he can, he can get the body locks and take it on that way. Uh, he's very willing to just grind. Like, there's no there's no audience this week, but he would be okay, regardless if there's an audience booing him. He knows that's his game. He'll grind. Uh, he'll smother you. Uh, you take his fight against Darren Stewart. He turned Darren Stewart into a take-down dummy. Good ground and pound, has a very old-school style of his ground and pound. Like He'll sit in the garden, Tito Ortiz, short elbow you. I was surprised that, when I go back to the Darren Stewart fight, that he was taken down by Darren Stewart, someone who's, I would say an underrated grappler himself, but not known for his wrestling. So Verbinski should have been the better wrestler there. Uh, but when he was taken down, it was nice to see that he got up very easily. He could not be held down. Now, submission defense is his Achilles heel. He has four losses. Three of them have come by way of submission. So to me, this really is two outcomes. Either Fabinski takes down Mirchard and holds him down for 15 minutes, or Mirchard gets, I mean, gets taken down and then finds a submission, like you're saying. I mean, you said it from you know top side. You think, yeah, he gets taken down against submission. But either way, so it's either that outcome or Fabinski just out wrestles him. I've always favored wrestling over BJJ. I think it's a much—it gives you a bigger opportunity to win. While BJJ is more, you know, hitting hitting the duck at the carnival as it's moving, and, and instead of the throwing the ball at the the three pins in front of you. Give me Fabinsky. I'll take him by decision. And uh, I think Mirshat's going to have his moments, but I don't think he's be able to catch forbinsky, So give me Fabinsky by decision.
0: Next up, it is the Strawweights. As veteran and former title challenger Jessica Penne welcomes short-notice opponent Lupita Gonidez to the UFC. Uh, Penne, the 38-year-old fighting out of Huntington Beach, is 12 and five overall. She is one and three in the UFC and uh, returning to action for the first time in uh, almost exactly four years. She exited the UFC on the back of consecutive losses to Danielle Taylor, Jessica Andrade, and Joanna Janjecek in the aforementioned title challenge. She had been scheduled to meet Hannah Goldie this weekend, but on two weeks' notice, it will be the undefeated uh, Combate and LFA veteran Godinez stepping in. Godinez, a 27-year-old fighting out of Vancouver, British Columbia, is a perfect five and zero oh in her uh, brief c- uh, career. She fought most recently on October thirtieth of last year at LFA ninety four, taking a decision over uh, Vanessa Demopoulos. Odds in this one greatly favor the newcomer. Uh, she is out there at minus three hundred. Penne around plus two fifty. Keith. I would say, can Penne turn back the clock? But even if you turn back the clock, she was on a three-fight losing streak. (laughs) Like, tell tell me what you think of this fight.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I feel for Penne, you know, she's had some incredible, I shouldn't say bad luck because some of it she put on herself. But, you know, you hear the stories. It seems like she's been a sacrificial lamb to USADA that other people haven't had to deal with. I, don't really, I didn't really follow the story too much, but you still feel bad for a girl not being able to make a living for a long time. Uh, as far as a skill set, I'm just going to base on what I last saw four years ago. I mean, That's the only thing I can do. Now, she moves forward. She does well to cut off the cage, though she's much better as the bull than the matador. She doesn't really like being pressured. Uh, that's because she avoids sh- shots like it seems like everyone in this codge does by backing straight up. Uh, she's a long, lengthy girl. She has a long jab. Her right hand is pretty accurate. She also arm punches, doesn't really step into her shots, so she loses power. She throws a lot of kicks, but often they are naked, so she's open to counters. She doesn't check leg kicks at all. Um, plum, and, and for a girl who you'd think would be a striker, I think she's much better as a grappler. In close is is where she's much better Plum Clinch is is solid. She gets in there and she she'll she'll grab the Plum Clinch and start blasting with knees. She'll get some body lock takedowns. She'll also catch a kick if you throw a catch to take you down. Her I wouldn't say she's a wrestler where she shoots on her and gets entries, but I say she's like like Felicia Herrick level of wrestling where she can surprise a takedown by an entry and get you down. Uh, and she has a Brazilian just jitsu back blood, so she is a submission threat move over to uh Guninez. she's a classic wrestle boxer the film i've seen of her she looks really good good boxing good output uh marches down her foes fast hands uh a great right hand she really steps in to her shots generates real power in her shots she's got good takedowns though she prefers the box she can wrestle uh, I've seen her one fight. She got in the hips and just picked her opponent up in the air and slammed her. Uh, she's hard to take down. You saw that in the last fight against uh, Vanessa Demopoulos, where Demopoulos was desperately trying to get the fight to the ground and and didn't get it down in 25 minutes. Often, at one or two times, she got it down, and she was doing usually, usually like weird things, like like an in a, imanari in roll to get it down, or you know stuff like that. Besides Jessica Penne being out for four years, she hasn't won a fight in six years. It's been a long time since we've seen Jessica Panay win. She's also 38. Now, on the flip side, uh, godinez I don't know if I'm saying her name right, and I apologize. Uh, she's coming off the best performance of her career. She batted Demopolis in her last fight. I think we're going to see very slim thing in this fight. I think this is going to be a slaughter. Give me... Uh, uh, Godinez, to, Godinez, how do I say her name? I apologize. Yeah, Godinez, you've got it. Godinez, I got to work yeah. on my Spanish. I apologize. Give me the UFC newcomer to absolutely wreck Jessica Panay. Uh,
0: we've had some dissension on this card so far. There's no dissension here. And I'm making this pick really off of one fight by Godinez because the level of competition she was meeting before then just it was nothing to write home about uh but she looked great against demopolis and i think of demopolis as a very solid prospect in her own right. i mean obviously uh godinez she's another one kind of like uh dakota bush who i think is probably arriving to the ufc a little bit early i you know based on the demopolis fight my thought for her was Great. She's someone who could use two or three more fights and maybe we'll see her on the Contender Series a year from now. Instead, again, we're seeing her in the big show now because the UFC needs bodies. Luckily for her, it's against Jessica Penne. And I I agree. You know, I really didn't give enough background or backstory on Penne's absence because that would be a 20-minute or 30-minute show all by itself. But basically, Penne was given the USADA death penalty you know, you may remember the stories from back, you know, again, you know, 2017, 2018, but w- was clearly made an example of for things that were going on on a widespread basis. And she was she she was the expendable one. Anyway, the main problem for me with Pene is even. I mean, even when she exited the UFC four years ago, she wasn't looking great. Losses to Jan Jacek, who was at the absolute height of her powers at that time, and to Andraj are who had just dropped down to a straw weight are understandable and excusable. But Danielle Taylor might be the smallest woman that's ever fought in the UFC. And she handled Penny doing a lot of the same things that Godinez will do like using, uh, athleticism and speed to bounce in and get into punching range on a taller striker. Uh, like, yeah, and, and Godinez, I think, is actually a more skilled fighter already than Taylor and a little bit bigger. Uh, I'm tempted to just say Godinez by whatever she wants, but I expect uh, Godinez just to get inside Penne's jab and 1-2 and, and either start mashing her from uh, punching range or, you know, take her down and, and just beat on her on the ground. Give me Godinez by... Round two TKO, probably on the ground. We now move up to the heavyweight division for the first of two heavyweight bouts on the card. And as mentioned off the top, the only fight other than the main event between two fighters who are above 500 in the UFC right now, it is Alexander Romanov versus Juan Espino. Romanov, the massive Moldovan, is 30 years old. He is a perfect 13-0 in his career. He is a perfect 2-0 since joining the UFC uh, late last year. He defeated Roque Martinez in his debut via arm triangle choke and then choked out Marcos Rogerio Pezao de Lima at UFC Santos versus Teixeira with Something that the sure Dog staff argued for quite a while over what even to call it, because he just sort of put his forearm on the guy's neck like it was a UFC eight or something, and uh and put him out. I don't know what else to say about it. Uh he is taking on Espino, the 40-year-old man from the Canary Islands. Yes, he is made in Canarias. Forty years old. He is ten and one in his career. He is 2-0 since winning the 28th and thus far final season of The Ultimate Fighter and until or unless the UFC makes good on its threat to, uh, uh, to run another season of The Ultimate Fighter this summer Juan Espino is half of the wonderful trivia bit that he, the winner of the final season of The Ultimate Fighter, is actually older than Diego Sanchez, the winner of the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Despite the fantastic trivia around his name, uh, Espino is the slight underdog here. He is plus one hundred and twenty, even plus one hundred and twenty-five. Uh, Romanov, you can get it minus one hundred and forty to minus one hundred and fifty. Keith, two. I'm just gonna say two surprisingly good heavyweights. <laughs> uh, that, that's all. That's all it, I can say about this. Yeah. Like, uh, Romanov. Even though he has 13 fights, he just feels like an incredibly raw product to me. He is a guy that looks like uh, Matt Mitrione did after about five fights where he like he's he's good at a lot of things just because he is actually an outstanding athlete. He's a he's a dude that, uh, you know, needed to start cutting weight to get under 265 once he started fighting in, like, you know, real live promotions and was getting looks from uh, major promotions. He is just a gigantically thick dude. He's only, like, 6'2", but, you know, he is a full pushing-the-limit heavyweight. And despite that, like, he's he's an athlete. He's Like, he's pretty quick on his feet. His hands are, are pretty fast. Even if his combinations are basic and his punches are, are wide and loopy, from what I've seen so far, they've been good enough for heavyweight even if like the better actual boxers at heavyweight are going to piece him up once he actually meets one. Uh, And, you know, he's again, I don't know how much of a wrestling trained background he has, but he is good at getting in on someone's body, scooping up and dumping them on the canvas in a way that makes you worry about the integrity of the octagon floor. I mean, this guy had a couple of the loudest takedowns of the MC Arena era of the UFC uh, in, in his first two fights. He's taking on Espino, who actually is a wrestler. You know, we made all this noise about Rogue Rogue, the Senegalese uh, wrestler who uh, fought for one championship last week. Juan Espino, also his background is Senegalese wrestling. He's uh, from the Canary Islands, a Spanish-speaking you know speaking nation that's just off that west coast of Africa, and he comes from the, the same background. Uh, I won't call myself an expert on Senegalese wrestling, but I have watched some of it, and it, it feels like African sumo. It's trips, throws, there's some very limited-type striking, and the fight, or at least the round, is over when someone's ass hits the ground. Like, there's no groundwork to speak of. Uh, Espino has developed some groundwork to go with his impressive takedown game. Uh, he is a very heavy guy from top position. Um. You know, both of his wins in the UFC, you know, first round submissions. And as soon as that fight hit the ground, this thing was over. Uh, he actually tapped out Jeff Hughes with the women's flyweight scarf hold arm lock throw because he just tossed the guy and then held on to it until Hughes' head was going to pop off. I, I don't know what else to call it. Now that I think of it, I guess they have two of the funnier submissions in, in recent UFC history in, in, in their last uh, fight. Even though Espino is 40, he's looked really spry. Uh, he doesn't have nearly as much wear on on him as your average 40-year-old heavyweight. This guy did not take the Alistair Overeem or Andre Arlovsky track to get where he is today. But he's got to start falling off at some point. And I'm picking this, even though I love Espino and I, I love his story, and I think just like his endlessly smiley personality is a lot of fun, I think this is going to have to be where his surprisingly good athleticism for a big guy uh meets Romanov's flat out good athleticism for an even bigger guy. And Romanov is a guy who's he's with a good camp. He's probably soaking this stuff up like a sponge. He and I'm I'm picking Romanov well I'm not tonight. I'm picking Romanov to turn a corner soon and become like more of a serious problem for the heavyweight division as he keeps kind of slimming down. But tonight, it's going to be enough that he's going to be the one dumping Espino on the ground. And while Espino is a crushingly heavy top position grappler, we've not really seen much of what he has to offer from his back or when he's the one being taken down. We're going to find out tonight. It's not going to be much. And give me Romanov by first round. Uh, I'm going to say TKO from ground and pound. But, uh, yeah, Romanov, uh, first round stoppage.
1: Wow. First round. All right, I love the the stat about Espino being older than Diego Sanchez, but like I don't know if that counts Because like, Diego keeps getting reborn and and getting <laughs> new, new enlightened. and he has this the birth of the nightmare and then the birth of the dream and the so uh well, then the,
0: the of Diego Sanchez is the world's oldest six year old then like <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he might be like, uh, younger than, uh, like Sean O'Malley or something. Uh, I like it. I'll talk about Espino. He's it, not, it, these both guys are pretty one dimensional. We'll say that. Like they both want to wrestle Espino hasn't shown much on the feet though. He does. He is pretty light on his feet. He does. Use, he uses movement pretty well. We saw that in his last fight. Uh, he, I would say he has basic boxing. Uh, a bit unorthodox with the boxing, but he makes it work somehow. Because one, people always think about his wrestling, so he lands shots based on that. We talked about on the recap show, Mackenzie Dern having unorthodox striking, but she'll land when people don't want to, you know, go to the ground. There, I think that kind of happens with Espino a little bit. He loves his his. They were talking about his last fight on the broadcast. He loves his dipping to his left, overhand right on the other side combo. Uh, Which is a little unorthodox. He'll throw a couple kicks out there, but he uses his boxing just to set up his takedowns. He likes to clinch you against the fence. He can shoot in on your hips if he has to, get a takedown that way. Though some of his entries is kind of ugly. He'll just duck his head and and drive forward, which will not work against Romanoff, or at least it shouldn't work against Romanoff. If he gets it to the ground, it's probably from a body lock, and he he does have good mat, returns if he, he gets around your waist but if he takes you down he looks to advance the position i like and he's got eight submission wins so he's he's a submission threat and as you mentioned it he has a classic fat guy submission with the scarf hold aka backyard headlock where you just grab the guy's head and squeeze or <laughs> at, or what you see the move at every youth wrestling tournament and then the the second grader gets off the mat crying and saying he couldn't breathe every single match. <laughs> and you gotta you gotta rub the kid on the back and say, Okay, yeah, I know, you couldn't breathe. That's why you lost. <laughs> you know. Um moving on to Romanoff, he's southpaw. He I haven't seen much striking on him at all. Uh in his last fight, there wasn't much striking, but when there was, he I actually thought he was losing. I thought Marcos de Delima was kicking out his legs. But he has a great double leg. We saw that against uh, De Lima. He can also get in the clinch, grind that way, clinch takedowns. He's got heavy top pressure, good ground and pound. <laughs> Another classic fat guy. Just looks like two guys that don't know how to wrestle. Just, I'm going to hold you down with my forearm until you pass out. I still can't believe that worked in 2020, 21, whenever it was. In the UFC, I, can't, I don't know. I can't remember if it was 2021 or if that was late 2020. Uh, there really is probably the two likely – well, there's three likely outcomes. The first likely outcome is they grind against the clinch. We have an extremely boring 15-minute fight. The other one is we have a sloppy kickboxing match. And the third one is one of the guys gets a takedown and the other guy can't go. Like those are really your three outcomes. Like I don't expect a on-the-feet kickboxing match where we're having, you know, setups and feints and combinations. Or like I don't expect that to happen. Who wins? I have zero confidence in picking. Like you were, you seem extremely confident. I'm not. I'm gonna give it to Espino, and it's gonna be the dumbest reason ever. I just kind of was flipping a coin, but Espino won tough. That may take some mental toughness. I don't know. people say it does, you know, to be in the house for six weeks and somehow get free food and, not, and have all your expenses taken care of. I don't know how that's very stressful, but that's what they claim. Give me a Spino to win uh, in a -- I think it's going to be that really ugly clinch affair. So this is my third upset pick. Give me a Spino.:
0: There we go. If dissension is what you come to these previews for, it is a good night for you because Keith and I are disagreeing strongly and like like we're really mad about it. It's time for the flyweights as Tracy Cortez faces off against Justine Kish. Cortez, eight and one overall, is two and zero oh since joining the UFC out of season three of Dana White's Contender Series, where she beat fellow prospect Maria Agapova. Uh, she has just fought once per year since then. She beat Vanessa Mello by unanimous decision in her UFC debut back in November 2019. Then last October, beat Stephanie Egger, also by unanimous decision. She'll be taking on Kish. The 33-year-old from North Carolina is 7-3 and overall. She is an even 3-3 and in the UFC. She fought twice last year, winning a unanimous decision over Lucy Pudilova. Uh, At UFC Fight Night Blades Dos Santos in January, then getting choked out by Sabina Maso at UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill in September. Odds uh, pretty strongly favor Cortez in this one. She is minus 240. Uh, You can get Kish at plus 200 as the underdog. Keith, who do you like in this one? Or if you don't like either of them, then uh, who do you think will win?
1: So, this is one of the fights i'm 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 a little intrigued in. I'll start with Tracy Cortez. This is a you know fight that came out with the Condenance areas. A lot of people are very high on her. She's a high paced fighter pressure striker. She's pretty elusive on her feet, pretty athletic uh though I think she avoids punches better with her footwork than she does her head movement. she doesn't really move her head. She also gets hit a lot because of her pressure style. uh She has a good variety in attacks like she'll go to the body, she'll add in kicks. She has an active jab that she works behind. She gets into the pocket and really unloads power shots. She as I mentioned, she throws kicks, but a lot of them are naked, and that's where she gets countered. She can get hurt against a really good striker. Like a uh, and Shevchenko would destroy her if she throws a naked kick on her. A solid clinch game, it actually might be her strongest point. She'll get like an underhook and just dirty box. She'll mix in takedowns with her striking. I wouldn't say she's a wrestler though. she kind of has um like she'll work for like a bear hog and get it down that way. Heavy top pressure though, she's good at winning scrambles. She is a submissions rat. she likes to attack the head, guillotines, darst chokes. that's kind of the way she likes to go. She's a weak defensive wrestler though, and when she's been taken down, she really struggles to get up. Now move over to Kish. Kish is a high output striker, throws combos. She likes to attack the calf kicks. Her last fight, she was doubling up the leg kicks. It was kind of fun to watch. She she'd throw like an outside kick with her right leg, and then spin, uh, you know, pivot on her foot and throw the inside kick with her left leg. She kept doing it over and over again to Sabina Mazo. Uh, that was fun to see. She likes it. She also likes a Holly Holm side kick that she does. Uh, she has a very so her boxing style is very similar to how when I used to box. She parries a lot of punches. That's something I always liked doing. Um, so if if people don't know what I mean by pairing is when someone kind of throws a punch, you go over the top of it, you kind of slap it down and then you kind of almost ricochet off the slapping down to throw your own offense. Uh, so she does yeah. that with a Muay Thai style where she keeps her arms very high and out. It was kind of uh, that she was doing against Sabina Mazo, which I've never liked the Muay Thai style in MMA because it really leaves you open to takedowns and kicks to the body. She keeps her chin high. Um, but and she also reaches sometimes. You don't want to reach when you're parrying because it leaves someone's throwing a feint, you're reaching towards the feint and then it leaves you open to a counter. Uh, but obviously with why I enjoy parrying is you kinda the person thinking offensively and you hit them with a shot, you know, so they so you're kind of using their offense against them. Uh, she drops it, her hands and she exchanges a little bit, but her dirty boxing game is pretty good in the clinch. Like she gets in the clinch. I think she'll do better in the clinch against Tracy Cortez than a lot of people think. She'll also catch a takedown. She'll mix in takedowns herself. And she's got good cardio. Like, she was going hard in her last fight. Tracy Cortez is a huge favorite, and I think the betting line is way off. I think this fight is much closer than it should be. I think Tracy Cortez is almost like a 3-to-1 favorite. And, And I think maybe why I think this fight should be closer is I'm not as high on Cortez as others are. I think she's a good addition to UFC. I think she's a good prospect, but I don't, I, I don't see her as a top five fighter in the future. I'm also higher on Kitsch than other people think. Like, I think people look at her as like like bum or low level, and I don't. I think she's actually, I think she's got some skills. Uh, I think she's actually maybe more technically sound than Cortez. And I actually had her beating Sabina Mazur in the last fight before she getting getting high kicked. Like, I thought she was going to win that fight. Uh, Cortez is meaner. She definitely has the higher ceiling. But my theme tonight is upsets. And if Kish can use some movement, use the same high output that she did against Mazo, she can avoid the clinch, avoid some of the wrestling. I shouldn't say avoid the clinch, but not get muscled in the clinch, not get backed up against the cage, kind of turn the corner, use the clinch to her advantage. Avoid some of the wrestling exchanges. Don't get stuck on bottom. And avoid the power shots, which is obviously extremely difficult. I just said a lot of things she has to do. I'm gonna say she does it. Give me Kish in an extremely close fight. I'm taking Kish. This is my fourth upset, and this is my upset special. I'm taking almost a three to one underdog. Give me Justine Kish to pull off the biggest win of her career. Oh,
0: bold prediction from Keith Schilling on that one. I agree with you that the that the line is way off here. I think, and like you say, Cortez has. You know she has a high ceiling. She has plenty of promise. She's young. She's athletic. Uh, she has a lot of different weapons, but I think we collectively kind of need to tap the brakes on her. Uh, I mean, you mentioned off air that you thought Aaron Blanchfield beat her at Invicta 34. You know, I'll also roll all the way back to Invicta 28, and that that card was obviously most famous for the horrible uh, Mizuki versus Janjaroba decision. But I also I scored that fight for Caitlin Neal against her. Um, and Caitlin Neal is someone who at the time was fairly promising and has yet to really progress past the like local Utah scene level which is the only reason I even know who she is and even since the Blanchfield fight I mean she's beaten Maria Agapova who obviously has had mixed results in the UFC and then Vanessa Mello and Stephanie Egger two of the lower level uh, flyweights in the division and I mean She's not even finished any of them. Kish has been fighting much higher level competition for much longer. I mean, you know, she beat Randa Marcos and Nina at the time, Antsaroff, now Nunez, right as she came into the the UFC. You pointed out she was doing really well against Mazo until, you know, she got uh, until really until right before the finish. She, uh, Kish is definitely a, a better uh, striker at this point, uh, has more weapons, throws in combination, better better footwork on the feet. And if this fight starts and Kish is using lateral movement, she's throwing her low kicks early and often, I'm going to like want to flip to your upset pick really, really quick. I mean, probably within 60 seconds. But right now, I'm still going with Cortez just based on my thought that if and when Cortez wants it on the floor, she's going to be able to get it there. Just give me Tracy Cortez by decision in a fight where, yeah, she's probably going to get some stuff she doesn't like in the first round and maybe late in the first round early in the second, she's going to do the Vittori versus Holland thing and be like, why am I hanging out in my opponent's wheelhouse? Take her down, start taking her down. Uh, I don't think she'll get the finish, but give me Tracy Cortez by decision over uh, Justine Kish. But for the record, uh, you are the, the braver and smarter guy for, for making the upset pick. The UFC Vegas 24 main card powers on with a lightweight scrap between Luis Pena and Alex Munoz. Uh, Pena, the 27-year-old from Little Rock, Arkansas, fighting out a St. Charles MMA, is 8-3 and three overall. He is three and three in the UFC. He fought twice last year, winning a unanimous decision over Steve Garcia at UFC fight night Benavidez versus Figueiredo in February. Then came back at UFC uh, Poirier versus Hooker in June and lost by third round guillotine choke submission to uh, Kama Worthy. He'll be taking on Munoz, who will be seeking to bounce back from his unsuccessful UFC debut. Uh, Munoz is 31 years old, 6 1 overall, uh, debuted in the UFC last August, and lost a unanimous decision to Nasrat Haq Parast at UFC fight night, Lewis versus Olinik. Munoz is a slight uh, underdog out there. You can catch him at even money or even uh, looks like plus 110. Pena is out there minus 125 to minus 130. Uh, Keith, who do you like in this one, and why? Uh,
1: so this is one of the fights that I'm 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 pretty intrigued on the card. Uh, I think it's I think it's a close fight. I'll start with with Pena. I didn't change much uh, from my notes of when I last saw him, so it might sound very repetitive. He's a southpaw. Works behind a jab. Uh, throws. He, he does throw one punch at a time, which I don't like. He also lacks power. Um, it seems like another theme I've been saying all night is arm punching. Uh, he His kicks, though, are, are, are his best weapon. He has long push kicks. He he has a lot of defensive holes in his uh, striking. He he avoids strikes by back is straight up. He also turns his head to avoid strikes instead of trying to – slip a roll with the punches and he's going to turn into like a high kick once he's going to get blasted uh he he's a good wrestler i would say uh he shoots doubles he has he uses his long arms like he'll extend his arms he gets his arms around his opponent's legs so he kind of closes the distance with his arms well uh i mean i shouldn't say does that well it just comes naturally he just moves his arms out <laughs> uh he's relentless to get the takedown Though sometimes he doesn't set it up, he'll, he'll shoot from too far away, and he's a weak defensive wrestler. Uh, and this is comes from guys not spending time in the wrestling room. It comes from drilling, you know, drilling your takedowns before a jiu-jitsu class, but not actually wrestling. Uh, he, he's on top. He's got solid top control. He has good top control due to his long legs. If you can get on your back and throw his long legs, in, it's very hard to get him out. He has a submission threat, though he was submitted by Common Worthy. And I think it was his last fight he was submitted mm-hmm. by Common Worthy, which you you can't like. Move over to Munoz, Munoz Southpaw. His hands are pretty fast, though I would say his he, he needs to work on his technique. I think he's just he he got some decent hand speed from just being a good athlete. I would say he's a very basic boxer. Uh, doesn't really cut angles. Doesn't really understand distance with his striking. Uh, he's just a good athlete. Now, he's an elite wrestler, though. This is his. He wrestled at Ohio State University. He was a prep school national champion. He trained an Olympic gold medalist, Kenny Monday. He's a team alpha male wrestling coach, blazing fast entries, gets in deep, quickly turns the coin. His, so I talked about, uh, gosh, who was it when I was talking to? Oh, oh, Tony Gravely. I was talking about Tony Gravely getting to the second level. Munoz has a different style. When Gravely would drive through it, Munoz gets on the hips and then he cuts an angle um kind of and he also it turns the legs they call it the windshield wiper you had daniel cormier talk about it a lot that's his style so he kind of comes in and then it's like a v comes in and he turns the corner while gravely has one drive through uh and it's either way is good whatever works for you is 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 great he also chain wrestles together so he could shoot on one leg and then come all the way across the other side Something like Habib. Now, I'm not calling him B, but that's what Habib was always great at. Habib wasn't great about driving through the hips. He wasn't even great about turning the corner. He was great about chain wrestling, and that's actually something that Munoz does good. Uh, though surprisingly, he struggled, and I think this might say more about Hakparas. He got he got Hakbaras down, but he struggled to keep him down, and he struggled to get takedowns as the fight went deeper on. I think it's some some would have been an adrenaline dump. Uh, I think he took the fight, and he think he took the fight on short notice too. So, so some of those things, I'll give him a pass. So as far as the prediction, Payton is a long and lengthy guy. He's going to give people problems just based on his length. However, I see him get out wrestled by Kama Worthy, who isn't known for his wrestling. I expect Munoz to do the same. I think this fight could look a lot like the Matt Favola fight, who has does have a wrestling background, who isn't. The, I don't think Favola is the level of wrestler that Munoz is and Favola was able to get a lot of takedowns on Pena. So I expect the same. So give me, I think Munoz wins his uh, first UFC fight and give me him by unanimous decision.
0: Beautiful. I I'm, I'm so happy for a couple of the things that you, that you said, uh, yeah, Pena is a guy, I mean, we're talking about a guy who has the, you know, USA wrestling logo tattooed on him, you know, like, which tells you regardless of how good or not good he is, it's, it's, you know, something he identifies himself with. Yeah. He's a surprisingly good offensive wrestler. And I think it almost covers up his deficiencies as a defensive wrestler. Sometimes like if you're six foot three at 155 pounds, your defensive wrestling is just going to be a liability. Like, you know, when a guy doesn't even have to bend over to like get to your hips, like that's, you know, it's going to be a liability. Uh, you know, but he's, he is a surprisingly good uh, offensive wrestler. He uses his long arms well there. And then obviously once he gets someone down, uh, you know, his, his back control, you know, can, can be very, very uh, tight. The thing about Peña is he the fights he's lost in the UFC for the most part have been the ones where he was not the better wrestler. Like, even, even going all the way back to the Michael Trezano fight, and I, I think it was the tough finale, or or at least their first fight out of tough, you know, I don't think of Trezano as, like, a lights-out wrestler, but just the fact that Peña couldn't take him down informed everything else that happened in the fight. And considering that my main... The main fault I would find with Munoz's game is that he's not willing enough to use his wrestling sometimes, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter if he's taking Peña down. If Peña can't take him down... Munoz will do better everywhere else and because of that even though Pena is the slight favorite I I feel like you appear to that this stylistic matchup favors Munoz greatly you know Pena everything else you know including his striking suffers when he doesn't feel he has the safety outlet to be able to take the guy down you know anytime he's getting something he, that you know he doesn't like the taste of on, on the feet uh give me Munoz in that mild upset by uh decision as well We now head for the middleweight division with a matchup between Abdul Razak Al-Hassan and Jacob Malkoon. Al-Hassan, the 35-year-old fighting out of Fortis MMA, is 10 and 3 overall. He is 3 and 3 since joining the UFC. Uh, he is currently on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, both last year, having lost to uh, Munir Lazes by a pretty lopsided unanimous decision back in July and then been shockingly knocked out in 30 seconds by Kaylin Chaos Williams at UFC Fight Night Felder versus Dos Anjos in November. He is taking on Malkun, The 25-year-old Australian is 4-1 and overall. He is 0-1 since making uh, his debut in the UFC last October, where he lost by knockout to Phil Hawes in just uh, 15 or 20 seconds. Uh, that was at UFC 254. Al Hassan, a strong favorite here, uh, minus 300. Malkun is out there at plus 250 as the underdog. Uh, Abdul Razak Al Hassan, I know his nickname is Judo Thunder, but he's kind of in that, that Sokaju category for me, where I'm not saying he isn't a credential judo practitioner, but when I look at his fights, I see about a five to one ratio of murderous overhand rights to actual judo trips or throws. Like he, I assume they gave him the name judo thunder, like in the gym before his first fight. Cause he, I, he is a knockout striker by, oh. uh, by trade and by profession. Uh, it was a bad look for him last year. I mean, he blew weight badly, uh, once he basically gave a showcase to Munir Lazez just as Lazez was a niftier striker, like just a much more technical striker. And Hassan couldn't touch him. Like Lazez just completely embarrassed him on the feet. And then Chaos Williams, just that little collision where Williams threw the beautiful short little right hand and just completely iced him. So he's coming back from that. And
1: he was accused of rape.
0: I mean, he was accused of the no, rape. No, I was talking about what yeah, yeah, like talking about a, a shitty year or two for yeah. for a man, and you know, like full disclosure, I uh, you know, I'm friends with his friend, and, and well, I'm friends with you know one of his primary training partners in in Alex Morono, and he says, yeah, it's it was a rough year or two for a guy that you know he at least says is is a good guy, and it's worth mentioning that those rape charges, it's not just that they were like kind of dropped in a cloud of smoke because there wasn't enough evidence. They were proven to be like flat out fabricated and, and fictitious. So, you know, considering how quick the media is to report when there's an accusation and then just kind of let it go. If it goes up in smoke, worth mentioning that they were proven to be like maliciously false. Anyway, he's taking on and he's moving up to 185 at this point. You know, he's a guy very muscular, clearly. Well, you know, very clearly had a tough time making the welterweight limit. He's moving up to 185. Based on what his game goes on, he'll, I mean, he'll be just as well off. Like, if his if his heater lands, it's going to knock out a 185 or just as easily as a 170. And more importantly, he's taking on a guy in Jacob Malkoon that I don't mean this to be mean, because for all I know, he, he has great potential as a fighter, but as far as I can tell, he is, primarily in the UFC because he's a primary friend and training partner of your headliner tonight, Robert Whittaker. Like that, that's it. That's the only reason that I can see that a four and O guy with kind of the eyeball test that he had in those four fights would be fighting in the UFC right now. Otherwise he's a guy, and I sound like a broken record here, a guy that a couple more wins and it might be cool to see him on the contender series at seven and O, you know, with a little more seasoning, but instead you know he got the the UFC debut. He got absolutely iced by Phil Haws in his debut. And guess what? Phil Haws does a lot of the same things that Abdul Razak Al Hassan does, just without bothering to try and trick you with the judo nickname. He just calls himself Megatron because he's going to blow your shit up. Uh, I fully ex- expect someone's shit to get blown up tonight. Uh, and yeah the These odds are right about on to me Malkun is a good striker, like he's you know he's uh he doesn't have quite the same obvious i came from karate stance uh, or style as Whitaker, but you know he he is uh he's a good kickboxer, but he's not particularly fast, not quick um i just i expect al hassan to get in after a pretty quick feeling out process smash him with something big and either just knock him cold or knock him down and finish it up on the ground. But give me Abdul Razak, Al Hassan to, uh, you know, get back to winning ways with a first round KO.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to jump in about the Al Hassan and the rape thing. I was just pointing out that it was a bad year for him. I was not saying, I believe oh. those accusations. It's been proven not guilty. I'm glad that was not true. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, and I wasn't trying to make a joke of rape. I was just saying that he that's a bad year if you get accused of rape, as in Deshaun Watson is going through a very similar situation. Regardless of what happens, it's a bad year for Deshaun Watson. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I'll talk about the good with Al-Hassan. He's explosive. I mean, that's the first thing I think everyone thinks of. He's fast. He's got huge power. I, I love what he does, and this is... Somehow I made this about me twice now in my boxing. That was, yeah, not world class by any means. But he does something I used to always like doing when a guy pillars. And what I mean by pillaring, it's I think about almost like the Tito Ortiz classic cover up behind your hands. He likes to grab that stationary target of the hand and then pull and wrap the punch around it, which is uh, which I absolutely love. Like leave uh, it like when you 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 play with your your your. I like doing that and you pull on the hand and like kinda of hit him with the other hand. That's what he likes to do, but when he does it, it's a extremely thudding punch that can put out a freaking rhino. Uh he's when he throws a combination, he can sneak in a high kick inside his combination. He did it against uh Munier in his last fight. Now he doesn't check leg kicks. Um and somehow I was to, to So let me jump to the the negative. I said I talk about the good. So let's talk about the negative. Uh, he doesn't check leg kicks. He punched himself again out against Manel Lizas. and you you kept talking about how one sided it was. It was one sided from about three minutes in the fight and on, but the first three minutes or two and a half. I don't know exactly how far it was. Al Hassan was putting it on. Lizas almost put him out. Uh, But what I like about Al Hassan, despite getting tired very early, he was still somewhat competitive. I don't think it was as much of a lashing as it it, it wasn't. It was a decisive victory, but it wasn't a, you know, stop the fight kind of thing. Uh, He did get one punch knocked out in his last fight against Cass Williams, which makes you, you know, worry going up a weight class. Does that help get a little more, you know, water in the brain area? That could help. Uh, I agree with you. I do Think his power will go with him. I think he he has a Anthony Rumble Johnson feel to him. Like I feel like the power will go with him. It might even be better. Uh, you talk about the judo background, the judo name. He did wrestle a little bit in his last fight, even though he never ever wrestles. It was nice to see him mix it in. And I think if you wrestle a little bit, that's actually going to open up your hands more. Think if people start thinking about that. So that's that's the you know the good and the bad for. Uh, Al Hassan. Now move over to Malkoon. I haven't seen too much film on him because there's not that much film on him, and his UFC debut was like 8 seconds or whatever it was, so <laughs> it's stupid. Um, he's got decent hand speed from what I've seen. He attacks with combos. He loves his overhand right, throws a little too much. Has some decent pop. There's nothing spectacular on his feet, though. He constantly attacks straight on the line. It's always a, like similar. Uh, He doesn't cut angles. He seems very inexperienced. He seems like the guy, and I I don't remember if I said this last time, or or if I just thought it. But he should—I should have said last time—we broke him down. He—he attacks. He thinks he's thinking. It shows that he's thinking, and that's not good. When you—you actually want to flow when you're striking. Like it, it shouldn't be like you're thinking about a combo. And he's like, "Okay, I learned this combo. Let me throw it right now, exactly, without any setup, just punching the guy's forearms." I feel like that's what he does on the feet. Now, I haven't seen too much on the ground, but there's a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition film of him out there. So I'm just going to assume that he's pretty good on the ground based on that. Uh, I'm not saying he's you know, Ryan Hall on the ground. Uh, he does look to advanced position. His wrestling is ugly, though. I mean, he shoots from way too far away. This, this is from the MMA fights that I've seen. Shoots from far too away. No setups. So as far as the prediction goes, first of all, I'm like, why does the matchmakers hate Malkoun? I mean, like you said, he probably shouldn't be in the UFC. But besides probably shouldn't be in the UFC, you put him against Phil Hawes, and then you followed up with Al Hassan. This is a terrible matchup on the feet. As long as Al Hassan's chin isn't completely gone, and Malkoun isn't some wizard on the mat that you know that I don't know about. I think this is this is going to be a really really rough night. I say Al Hassan's too fast, hits too hard, and I think he puts out Malkoun in brutal fashion. You know, I don't like taking a huge huge favorite as my lock of the night, so I'm going to be extremely confident. And I say Al Hassan wins by first round. Uh, I'll say knockout is my lock, but he probably puts him out in the first round. Give me Al Hassan by first round knockout.
0: Third from the top on the main card of this ESPN offering is a heavyweight matchup. Between the ageless Andre Arlovsky and Chase Sherman. Sherman, the 31 year old Mississippian, is 15 and 6 overall. He is 3 and 5 across two separate stints in the UFC. Uh, he returned to the UFC last May, uh, knocking out Isaac Villanueva, who stepped up on short notice in the second round of their matchup at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Teixeira. He is taking on Arlovsky, the 42-year-old who has been around seemingly forever. He is uh, one of the uh, final fighters in the UFC who fought in the pre-Zufa era, meaning he's come and gone a few times, but he literally was in the UFC before Dana White. He is 30 and 20 with two no contests in his two decade career across uh, multiple different stints in the octagon. He is 19 and 14 with one no contest. He has seen the highest highs and the lowest lows. Obviously he's a former UFC champion. There was a time when I don't think you could argue against him being one of the top three heavyweights in the sport. There was a time when He was probably one of the top 10, well, he was definitely one of the top 10, if not one of the top five fighters in the history of the heavyweight division, but he's been around for a long, long time, and we've seen, I mean, we've seen him, he's had two different four fight losing streaks, one five fight losing streak with winning streaks in between. He's faced many of the greatest heavyweights of all time, and in this presumably final act of his career, he's now... Still competitive against, you know, some of the better, if not absolutely elite fighters of this era. He fought most recently, just back in February, uh, losing via second round rear naked choke to the highly regarded Tom Aspinall. That snapped a modest two fight win streak over Felipe Linz and Tanner Bozer. Arlovsky steps in on short notice, about, I think about two weeks. Ago, We found out that Parker Porter would not be able to compete on this card and Arlovsky stepped in on the fairly short turnaround and very short notice. Uh, He is the slight underdog here. Not only is he a plug-in replacement for Parker Porter, he is an underdog to Chase Sherman, who is below 500 in the UFC. Or no, sorry, Arlovsky, the slight favorite. Respect for our elders. Arlovsky, (laughs) minus 175. uh, Sherman around plus 150 as the underdog. Uh, Keith, I'll throw this one to you first. And just for shits and giggles, uh, how would you have felt about the uh, Porter versus Sherman matchup? Just 30 seconds, wild guess, and then give me
1: your pick so, for this one. You know, I don't like making picks without doing a film study, but I'll give my first initial reaction because everyone, when you see a fight the announcement, you always have your initial reaction. You think it win. I probably would have went with Chase Sherman, No pre, no tape study. As far as this matchup, I have no idea how I feel about this matchup. I, I, I honestly don't remember that Parker Porter was booked, which is surprising being that he's a local guy to me. That I, I'm surprised that I forgot about Parker Porter. Uh, but I love that Parker Porter was replaced by Andre Alowski. I just think that's so funny. Uh, a guy that I viewed as a regional fighter forever got replaced by former UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, Andre Alowski, I'll say this. And, and I like to be honest and transparent with the listeners. I I think people could tell I do a lot of film study. I mean, I think they can tell both of us do a lot of film study. I didn't do any film study on Andrzej Lasky for this fight. I just was kind of sick of watching Andrzej Lasky. I didn't want to see him get knocked out by Tom Aspinall again. And so I didn't do any film study on Andrzej Lasky for this one. So it's going to sound very similar to my breakdown of my... So what I do is I have my notes and then I kind of update something new joins out to me, you know, I don't want to repeat the same thing, so I take some things out, reword things. Uh Alaski's a counter striker. He's a boxer. He he has a high guard. He's actually one of the most classic guys with the good the high guard. He's actually one of the guys who's been very good at it. He's he's a tight boxer. And what I mean by that is everything's tight. The the hooks are tight. The Overhands are tight. They're not looping outside. He doesn't lose power because of his tightness. Though his hand speed has slowed down and has slowed down greatly for a long time. He has really changed his strategy of attacks. He attacks with low output, which I actually think is smart. One, it protects his chin. And also, as you get older, I doubt his cardio is as strong as it was in his heyday. So I, th- I think he's become a very intelligent fighter, and I think he knows his physical limitations, and he, he really does get the best out of it as he possibly can at this point. Uh, we talked about his chin like being great, being gone, being great, being gone. It seemed like every time we gave up on his chin, it comes back. Who knows in this fight what going to be. That said, I'm pretty confident that his power is gone, and I'm, pr- I'm pretty confident that it's gone forever. He hasn't got a KO since he beat Travis Brown six years ago. I said that last time we were breaking down him. I'm saying again. It has been 17 fights since then, and he hasn't got a knockout in his last 17 fights. I He likes to clinch down. That's become his game. I mean, if you go back to his – he came from a Sambo background, so that could always be his game, but you know, he didn't really – I feel like when we first, he first showed up on the scene, we saw a lot of his grappling and then it kind of went away for a really long time. And I feel like we're starting to see some grappling again with him. And I think that's smart because he's a good wrestler. He He's a good technically sound wrestler. He's a good grappler. Uh, there's no major holes in his grappling. I wouldn't say he's a, you know, he's not Josh Barnett where he's going to grab an arm and submit you or Fabricio Verdum. He's not an you know, elite grappler, but he can definitely win grappling matches. Now, Muo Chase Sherman. Chase Sherman has really changed his game a lot since you know, I must say this. I'm going to call this good Chase Sherman. Like his second stint is good Chase Sherman compared to bad Chase Sherman. The good Chase Sherman he uses a lot of feints, which I like. He's got tight boxes. Someone's what I talked about Golovkin. I think stays tight. He has a stationary target, which I don't like. He stands directly in front of his opponent, no lateral movement. Um, but he does that because. His power shots is his best shot. He his left hook is his best punch. Uh he likes that mid-I wouldn't say pocket, but that mid-range, like just at the extent of leg kicks. He loves his step in knees. He got some really good step and knees against Villanueva in his last fight. He landed a huge elbow in close against Villanueva. Uh calf kicks was one of his targets in that fight. And he's also become a builder. Like, I went back to some of his, like, island fights and see. And Chase Sermon gets – the output increases as each minute goes by, which is something I like to see. Now, as far as the prediction goes, I really want to take Chase Sermon. I really do. I mean, I think he – I mean, it, it's hard to realize how much he's grown Because he's faced really low-level competition His debut was again I mean, his return, I should say Was against Ike Villanueva A blown-up light heavyweight Who probably isn't UFC level anyways I mean, we probably need to redefine UFC level But generally speaking He's hes a classic journeyman You know, you're you are a fight And Ike Villanueva Yeah, he's solid You know, but There's a sailing to him so it's hard to really know where Chase Sermon has it. Like, how much has he improved? And I still remember the guy that was the absolute bottom of the heavyweight division. And i got to ask myself this question. Has Alaski dropped that far down? I don't know. I mean, he f- beat Felipe Lenz recently. Uh, he beat... Uh, who's the guy with the missing the, the tooth and the mullet? And the Bowser. Guy. Tanner 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 Bowser. Bowser. Tanner Bozer. Tanner Bozer. Yeah, he, he beat recently. So has he fallen that far to lose to Chase Aaron? I don't think so. I think he's wise enough to still get a win. I think he might see a lot of clinching. I think he might sneak in some takedowns. And I think it's going to be a slow affair. And he's just going to be more crafty and be smarter and win a really boring fight that we forget about. So give me Andre Alowski in a decision in a snooze fest.
0: Yeah, it, I I love that you brought up that Arlovsky hasn't uh, uh, knocked out anybody since Travis Brown, uh, you know, 17 fights ago, because one of the things that I was about to bring up is that in the last five years, his last 15 fights, the only people that have knocked him out have been Stepe Miocic, Francis Ngannou, and Jarzina Rosenstrike. I mean, for a guy that 10 years ago we were saying, oh, Arlovsky's done as a top level fighter, a stiff breeze would knock him out. As you pointed out, his, his new kind of ultra conservative, uh, game plan, you know, his new style, his, his greater willingness to, uh, to use his wrestling and grappling, his much lower outputs. It's for the most part, it has worked. He's only really been knocked out by maybe the greatest heavyweight ever. And two guys that knock everybody out. Uh, With Sherman, every time I think about Sherman and remember fights of his that I've watched or watch him fight, I always ask why, I just always find myself asking, why isn't Chase Sherman better than he is? Uh, Just based on just being a real live, big bodied heavyweight. Like he is six foot four and he is a not fat 250 pounds. And for a guy that size, he moves pretty smoothly. You know, he's probably wouldn't beat like, you know, surreal gone and a decathlon, but he's kind of got that uh Martin Tibera, Matt Mitrione, like, huh, you're actually kind of light on your feet for a 6'4", 250 pound guy, huh? He's got that and yeah, d- despite that, he's never really broken through past the okay at the UFC level I agree with you that the Ike Villanueva fight didn't teach us much I love Ike, he's a Houston guy I-, I see him around, but I'll be honest, like, you know, if not for covid needing you know leading the ufc to need bodies on short notice ike Villanueva wouldn't have made it to the ufc when he did and if not for the fact that he literally just stayed in vegas after that he probably wouldn't have gotten more than one fight but he has three fights in the ufc because he went and stayed in vegas and said i'll fight at heavyweight or light heavyweight on any notice you just let me know
1: and good and for hey, him he for was, doing that hey good and for him he was rewarded it. with yeah
0: good for him yeah and he was rewarded for that with actually getting his first win in the UFC. He's got something that nobody can ever take away from him. However, he's not a he's not a barometer of whether Chase Sherman is a top 15 heavyweight. He he just isn't. Uh I you're right in that that Sherman is a builder ha- and has become more of a builder recently. Despite the fact that he's he's big and athletic, he's not really a one-shot knockout guy. So that's not something Arlovsky will need to worry about. But Sherman's shown a you know, a good gas tank even back in his like first stint in the UFC and kind of uh I just I think this is going to be kind of a a, a moment where Arlovsky slips another gear. Where we're gonna look back at this fight and be like, you know what? Chase Sherman beat him, one every round without really doing anything spectacular. Arlovsky fought the best he could He didn't expose himself. He didn't give away rounds. Just Chase Sherman, uh, the 2021 version of Chase Sherman is a little better than the 2021 version of Andrei Arlovsky. Father time, still undefeated. Uh, Chase Sherman doesn't quite get to 500 in the UFC, but he gets right on the doorstep of it. He will go to four and five in the UFC, uh, handing Andrei Arlovsky a decision loss. Uh, Give me Sherman. I mean, I'm not going to say, hey, it's my upset you know, special since he's like plus 150. But of the upsets I've picked, this might be the one that I feel most sure about. The co-main event of UFC Vegas 24 is a lightweight scrap between the veteran, Jeremy Stevens and Drakkar Close. Stevens, one of the two or three uh, most prolific fighters in UFC history at the moment, is 34 years old, 28-18 28 and 18 with one no contest overall. He is 15 and 17 with one no contest across a UFC career that has spanned the lightweight as well as the featherweight divisions. Most recently, he had been competing at featherweight and has been mired in a frankly miserable run, albeit against some of the best fighters in the division. Uh, he had a loss to Calvin Cater last year at UFC 249. Prior to that, he had two fights against Yair Rodriguez. The first ended in a no contest via accidental eye poke in the opening seconds, but he lost a straightforward, unanimous decision in the rematch. Prior to that, he lost to Zabit Magomed Sharipov and Jose Aldo. You have to go all the way back to February 2018, so over three years ago, uh, for his last win in the UFC. He is stepping back up to 155 pounds to take on Close. The 33-year-old from Michigan is 11-2 and 1 overall. He is 5-2 in the UFC. He fought just once last year, losing uh, a first-round or sorry, second-round knockout to Benil Dariush at UFC 248 last March. That ended a three-fight win streak for Close uh, over Christos Giagos, Bobby Green, and Lando Venata. Despite the fact that it's Stevens stepping up in weight, and despite the uh, difference in their recent records, Stevens is the slight favorite. He is out there at minus one forty, where you can get close at plus one twenty or plus one twenty-five as the underdog. Uh, Keith, uh, who do you like in this fight? Uh, How do you think it goes? And you know, let us know.
1: So, as much as I ragged on this card. And and it's not a good card. I'm not gonna like stop backing out of that now. It, there is some intriguing matchups. I feel like there's some storylines. I think Jeremy Stevens trying to save his career, moving up the light moving back up to lightweight is intriguing. I think he kinda did it a little too late, but um and then Dracard Close, you know, he's got a good record in the UFC. He he was doing well against Manil Darius. Like I'm actually intrigued by this matchup. I'm not intrigued enough to be excited if this gets boosted to the main event if something happens to the main event but uh it's not it's not a, this is not a terrible matchup like is it should it be co-main event no i feel like much better if there's just a regular main card fight so we'll start with jeremy stevens jeremy stevens we've broken him down a million times uh, people have seen him a million times as you mentioned this is his 34th fight in the ufc you know what you get with him at, at this point point. and moving up a weight class i don't think really changes his style he's a pressure counter striker he uses feints very well to draw out attacks, where he wants to create, he wants to hold his ground and create a brawl. I would say his power is overrated. I think it can increase moving up to lightweight. I just think, generally speaking, that increases for for a lot of guys. But I do think his power is overrated because he telegraphs his shots and he loses some of his power. That said, I think the narrative has been for a long time: Jeremy Stevens' power is. You know it was so amazing and then the pendulum got swung to It's overrated. He's not that he's not that big of a Hard hitter it was like well We got to balance that so I to. I'm trying to balance that because all you gotta do is ask Josh Emmett How serious Jeremy Stevens power is I think he could tell you He's got a great overhand right and he's got that uppercut Like those, those these two of his big big shots he attacks with some of the best calf kicks in all of MMA, or I should just say the whole leg, not just the calf. See, so upper body, uh, upper leg, I should say. He's a little flat-footed. He's a bit of a stationary target. He stands directly in front of his opponent. And at this time, you, you know, you face a guy like Gary Rodriguez, who's so fast, so elusive, so well at judging distance. Like, you can't be a, a stationary target. Like, the days of you know, the Rampage Jackson standing right in front of you. That that has passed. Like you have to be more technically sound. He keeps his head on the center line, which is it was obviously a negative thing. He's very heavy on his lead leg, which leaves him open to you know, obviously I always talk about this all the time. You've a your lead leg, it's gonna set up your left hook. It's if you're in the orthodox stance having lead leg, you have more power, it's mostly for your left hook. Uh but also it leaves you open to the leg kicks which is really surprising, considering Jeremy Stevens is knows how important the calf kicks is. It's such a huge part of his game. Um, he's also been hurt to the body a lot recently. Uh, I think about the Jose Aldo fight. Jose Aldo hurt him with that body shot. Yair Rodriguez, I was there in Boston covering for sure. Yair, Yair Rodriguez dropped him with a body shot. Uh, so that's the striking. Now, you starting the grappling, and, and I always think clinch in for grappling Jeremy Stevens is a good clinch striker because he's very physically strong. Now, regardless if we think his punching power is overrated, Jeremy Stevens is 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 a just a strong human being. If he can get in the clinch, he can hurt you that way. And he's mean. He likes it in there. He can land elbows in there. Like he likes that game. No, he's not a great wrestler. I, I wouldn't say he's not even a wrestler at all. he doesn't wrestle. He doesn't look for takedowns. He struggles to you know avoid takedowns, we've seen the list of the amount of people that have taken Jeremy Stevens down. I, we, this this broadcast would go really long if I kept naming him. He also struggles to get back up. But he's got incredible s- submission defense. they were all the fights he's been in the UFC for 12 years since he was last submitted, which is incredible when you think about the names of fighters that he, Jeremy Stevens has faced. Like Not only has he fought in the UFC, but he's fought studs. He's got very good ground upon pound, though. If you're if, if you if you're willing to try to take Jeremy Stevens down, you have to understand that there's a chance a scramble can ensue and you're underneath him. And if you're underneath Jeremy Stevens, that's a scary person to be underneath. Uh, I, think about Yair Rodriguez was kind of clowning on him, and Yair Rodriguez almost was stopped with the Jeremy Stevens' ground and pound in their, in their fight. Uh, he also... Everything about Jeremy Stevens, and, and I said this, I believe, last time when we broke down one of his fights... Is he does not get enough credit for his cardio because when you think of guys who throw hard, they tend to slow down, and that is not the case with Jeremy Steve. You know, we haven't seen him go 25 minutes in a, I don't remember the last time he went 20, he was in a 25 minute matchup where he actually went that far, but we've seen him go 15 minutes and he goes 15 minutes hard. Throwing power shots. So he's dangerous throughout the whole 15 minutes. And he's got the heart. No matter how bad you beat him up. To, to get, I keep going back to the your, your Rodriguez fight. No matter how bad you beat him up, he's going to keep going for him. Now, move on his regard close. Now, he's a counter-striker, too. Which we could have a lot of staring where both guys are kind of waiting to see if the other one will, you know, take the lead. He's also, he's also a bit flat-footed himself. He has, but he throws straight shots. His punches are straight down the middle. He steps in his shots, and he's he's really starting to come into his power. We take his last fight against Benel Darius. Now, of course, he was on the end of a incredible knockout, but he had moments that he rocked Benil Darius. We know how well Benil Darius is doing right now. Uh, he tends to throw a little from his hips, which leaves him open to counters. But calf kicks. We talk about Jeremy Stevens. Calf kicks have started to become a game of Dracon close. He's also a very physically strong dude. He's big for the weight class. I mean, he's he's not he's not the guy that like Jeremy Stevens is the guy that he walks in a room and you see his strength. Like you just, he's got big muscles. He's you know he's he's what every twenty two year old guy wants to look like. As they're walking to the club. That's not Dracar Close. Dracar Close has that brute strength. He's that like farmer's strength. He's got like the Matt Hughes strength where you, you see it. And he fights that way too. Like he he will fight ugly clinch battle. He'll land good elbows in close. Uh, I think about his fight against Mark De That was a fight where he just got in close and just wore him out. Uh, and he's more of a clinch wrestler and a body lock guy than he drives through your hips. Like he'll he'll grab you grind on you, and then t- take you down with, like, a back trip. Uh, when he was taken down, he gave up his back against Benel Darius. You remember Darius had his back in the in the first round. But he was hard to submit. And Darius is an elite grappler. And he found a way to fight him off his back and fight off the submission. Now, the other thing about Drakkar that I'm worried about is his chin. I mean, he was knocked out by Darius. Like, is he going to be gun-shy? Has he recovered? You know, we've seen guys, all it takes, you only have so many shots in your button. Some guys, like Andre Alowski have 2,000 punches to that button. Some guys have 20. You know, you don't know where Dracar Close falls in that. And then, you think about it, he got knocked out in his last match. Does he? Is he going to be gun-shy against a guy like Jeremy Stevens, who's known you know, for being a knockout puncher? This is a really, really tough fight. This is my fight of the night pick. Um, even though I said, you know why it's my fight of the night? I don't know if it's going to be the most entertaining, but it's the one that I had the hardest time picking. And that has made me really intrigued. Because there's so many question marks. Is, is, is Jeremy Stevens still a top-level fighter? Is Jerkakos ready to take a step up? You know, what will we see? And that has made me intrigued. And you know what? I'm just going to take the younger guy. I think Jeremy Stevens has not fought someone in a long time that can match his physical strength. He's moved up in weight class, so uh, he's going to lose some of that physical strength in that. I think Close is going to get some moments in the clinch. I think he might land some shots. I think he might target the body that we've seen Jeremy Stevens. So give me Dracar Close, and I think it's going to be a war. And he's not going to take Jeremy Stevens out, but I think... Yeah, I'll see it goes to decision. Give me your car close by... I'm going to say split decision. Now, now I want to I say something real quick before you jump in. And, and shout out to our, our buddy, Jay Petrie, who's absolutely fantastic. He filled in for me last week. He said something on the on the breakdown show, and I want to explain why I pick split decisions. He says he doesn't pick split decisions because he doesn't want to guess at what people are thinking, which 100% understand what he's coming at. The reason why I pick split decisions is basically that's my... And we're coming from two different perspectives... It's my way of saying this is going to be extremely close that people could debate it. That's what I see, usually say is split decision. So. No,
0: I, I completely agree. That's actually one spot where I, I don't agree necessarily with, with Jay, even though he's my boy. Because you can look at a fight in advance and be like, you know what? That fight is just going to have some individual rounds that are going to be really hard to score. Yeah, You know, we're probably even just the three official Sherdog scorers won't agree on some of the rounds and, you know, let alone the judges that who knows what the hell is going on in their heads. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it may not be literally that I'm saying it's going to be a split decision, but it's just shorthand for it's going to be really one close. of those fights. Yeah, it's going to be really close. And even just individual rounds, you know, will be really close. It's funny. I agree with you on all of your individual assessments of kind of these fighters' strengths and weaknesses, their fight styles, the, you know their, their history, and what we can learn from it. And yet, I'm gonna come to conclusions that are completely different than yours, because I'm actually not confident this will be a fight of the night candidate. I, I can see this as a fight where both guys might end up a little tentative on the feet. Uh, Drakkar Close, early in his career, he was really good at using the clinch to smother people who wanted to strike with him from distance you know, your uh, Mark Giacchese, Lando Venata, you know, types. He doesn't do it quite as much anymore, but he's got something, and maybe it's just he hits harder than it looks like, but he's got something that makes people just not want to open up on him fully. Like, I, like it. you can't really tell from Bobby Green, because Barbie Green will just go two minutes without throwing a punch just because he's Bobby Green. But I noticed it in the Giagos and even the, the Darius fight, and if, yeah, if, if, Stevens is concerned about his chin, uh, like close could really slow him down. And then obviously Stevens is the same way. I think his, I mean, we started, we started, I think to overestimate or overrate, or at least the UFC booth started to overstate his one punch knockout power. Cause he had just a couple of really impressive early ones. Like, uh, Rafael dos Anjos is someone that he, he iced, uh, there, there were a couple of them. He looked like, but then, you know, it it was 10 years later and the UFC was still saying, you know, he just needs to touch your chin once, which isn't true, but it is true that he has a kind of power that everything he throws hurts. You know, like his, his clinched knees, elbows, like little short punches, they clearly hurt. Even if his punches aren't like one shot, one hitter, quitter type punches, they hurt. He has power. He's a, he's a super strong guy. And even at 34 with all the miles on him, he's still quick. Uh, he still has, uh, you know, he still has fast hands. I just, I do wonder what he'll look like at, at lightweight after all these, uh, years. But then again, I shouldn't wonder cause he was closer to lightweight than to featherweight in the cater fight. So, <laughs> you know, he, he blew weight in that fight by by five pounds. I think I'm going to say that I, that Stevens isn't as shot as I think he is based on five fights in a row against some of the very best fighters at featherweight and that moving up in weight will be a good move for him here. I think it might shore up some of the problems he's had. Well, it'll instantly shore up the problem he had of missing weight, but uh, his gas tank, which has always been pretty good, will stay good. His chin will be better. And again, the kind of power he has, I, I think, well, he's proven that it's effective against lightweights. He knocked Rafael San Anjos the hell out, but it will remain effective against uh, against lightweights. The odds are close on this one, no pun intended, and I think they're about right. I do slightly favor Stevens in this one. Uh, give me Stevens by decision, and unlike you, I am in no way confident this is going to be a great fight. We might see a lot of... Clinching that actually needs to be split up by the ref because there's just not enough offense going on. And there might be a few staring matches on the feet, but we'll see. That brings us to the main event of the evening a very high stakes middleweight matchup between Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum. Two men with, if I may say, quite a lot in common. Both are winners of the Ultimate Fighter, who came more or less out of nowhere to beat more heralded fighters. Both of them are former welterweights who have found their greatest success at middleweight, the difference being that Whitaker chose to move up and Gastelum was forced to do so. Both of them have been around and been contender-level fighters for long enough that it's kind of surprising that they're 29 and 30 years old, respectively, However, the similarities kind of end there, as the two of them are uh, on slightly different uh, tracks in the last year or two. Whitaker, the man we call the Reaper or Bobby Knuckles, 30 years old, a uh, native New Zealander fighting out of Australia. He is 22 and 5 in his mixed martial arts career. He is 13 and 3 since winning the Ultimate Fighter, the Smashes. That was the UK versus Australia season. He is, of course, the former UFC middleweight champion. He lost that title to Israel Adesanya in devastating fashion at UFC 243 in October of 2019. He has bounced back since then with unanimous decision wins over Darren Till in July of last year and Jared Cannonier in October of last year. He takes on Gastelum. The Ultimate Fighter Season 17 winner is 29 years old from Arizona but fighting out of King's MMA in LA. He is 16 and 6 with one no contest in his mixed martial arts career. He is 11 and 6 with one no contest in the UFC. He fought most recently at UFC 258 just 2 months ago taking a unanimous decision over uh the up-and-coming Ian Heinish. That snapped a three-fight losing streak for Gastelum that even though it came against very, very high-level opposition, nonetheless left some of us wondering if he was all washed up before age 30. He lost to Jack Hermanson by a very quick uh, heel-hook submission last July. He lost a split decision to Darren Till at UFC 244 in November of 2019. And he lost a, a unanimous decision to Israel Adesanya in their title fight at UFC 236 back in April of 2019 in one of the best fights of that year. Odds in this one uh, favor Whitaker pretty substantially. He is a minus 250 favorite. Gastelum around plus 210 as the underdog. Keith, uh, the winner of this fight, even though both of these guys have lost to Israel Adesanya, has a decent chance of being the next guy to fight Israel Adesanya. Uh, especially given that uh, Marvin Vittori didn't exactly do much to, you know, put his stamp on that next title shot himself. You know, tell me who you think is going to win this fight and how it, how you think it'll play out. But also tell me which of these guys you think would have a better chance against Adesanya in a rematch. Oh, and if there's any.
1: Well, okay. So, this... all right. So. I'll start with who I think would do best against Adesanya. And that goes with kind of one of the underrated storylines, the under-the-radar storylines. And that's, I would say Gaslam, because we saw how good Gaslam did against Adesanya. Now, Adesanya's a guy who's that's adding so much things to his game. He's kind of learning on the fly. So, But, you know, we had one of the greatest fights of all time when he fought. So I feel like that's an under-the-radar story that, Gaslam with the middleweight pitcher being wide open, that anybody has a great performance. If Gaslam comes Whitaker, like he could get that title shot and you could sell that based on showing the highlights of the first fight, putting it out on free, you know, the free YouTube and things like that. Like you could sell that, the rematch. So I feel like that's an underrated. And also his his turnaround. If he beats Robert Whitaker taking the fight on short notice you know, after beating Ian Hayes, when people started thinking, you know, his fight against Jack and all that thinking he was done. Like to me, that's a really good story. So that's who I think would have the best chance. Cause I saw Robert Whitaker and his style is, I just don't feel like it's suitable for Adesanya. When when I made my prediction for Whitaker for Adesanya, I picked Adesanya and I was very confident. I just, one of those ones I just felt like he's just not a good stylistic matchup. The other thing that's under the radar is we've been waiting two years for this fight. Like people forgot that these two guys were supposed to fight each other at UFC 234. These guys weighed in and everything, and then Whitaker pulled out the day of the fight. Hour I think it's two or three hours before, uh, you know, at least when it, that's when it was announced due to health issues. So I feel like that should have been announced. Like <laughs> that should have been pushed a little bit. Uh, you know that we've been waiting, finally getting the matchup. And I think it was a fantastic matchup. Then I was obviously more excited for that matchup. Then you know the heavyweight—I shouldn't say heavyweight—the middleweight championship of the world was on the line. Uh, but during film study, I'm, I, I've kind of built my excitement for this. Either Bobby Knuckles is still the second best welterweight. Uh, man, why can you I give him every weight class? <laughs> but the weight class they're in, it's probably because they both were former welterweights and then Gaslam gets up as heavy as heavyweight, <laughs> like yeah. like the day before weigh-ins. Um, but, you know, Whitaker's still the second best, or Gaslam's still elite, got himself back in the title picture. Either way, it's, it's an intriguing story. Now, I'll talk about their styles. Robert Whitaker, I'm waiting for the wheels to fall off on this guy. I've been waiting it for a while because the amount of damage he has taken over the years just simply can't be taken and and be successful. I think it's been like seven, six or seven fights. He just took ungodly amount of damage. I think about he almost got knocked out by Derek Brunson, and he got the wars against Joe Romero, and then he did get starched by Adesanya. He got hurt by Darren Till. He got hurt by Jared Cannonair. There's probably one or two fights in there that I'm forgetting about. Uh, and also, let's not forget about all the amount of injuries this guy has. I mean, there was times we thought he'd never fight again. There was just, like, one after the other, after the other. It's like he was, like, Dominic Cruz all over again. Now, let's talk about – so that's all the stuff, like, you know, not his skills. So let's talk about his actual skills. So the first thing you got to talk about, Rob McIntyre, is his jab. Everything comes off his jab. And I love that he throws a double jab. He he doubles it up. He's one of the few guys that can set up offense and defense with a jab. Like, he obviously – you know what I mean when we talk about setting up offense with a jab. You know, you jab and then you follow up with a power shot, but he also can hold back his opponent's attacks by holding his ground and just throwing the jab out. He did it extremely successful against Joel Romero. He he kind of does the same thing with his overhand right, though. He you know obviously you step in and hurt you, and and he really wings it at his opponent. He almost he almost knocks himself over with it, the way he throws it. But he'll also will time you coming in. He's very good at timing attacks. Uh, I'm going to keep talking about Yoel Romero because, you know, that's the guy he shared 50 minutes of a cage with. But he was very good at picking up the timing of Yoel Romero's attack. And one of the things he was landing was landing an overhand right that kind of was like a wall for him that was like a warning. Like, you come in, this thing might land. And it really turned Romero gun shy at times, which is not that hard to do, but what I like about why why i I really jumped out at me is he did it to to Jared cannon air too Jared cannonair is not a guy that's scared to come in and really force it. and even when he was losing he tried to make it uh that way now some things I always talk about head movement and being a a you know you need to he- have head movement, but you can't do it like Rob wood Rob wood relies solely on head. Movement And that has caused him to get tagged So much But the reason why he relies On head movement is he When he slips he pushes Puts himself in the position for his His left hook While I kept saying his his jab Is what everything comes off of You know that's He needs the jab to set up that left hook The left you know work and, And score your points the left hook is what Puts you out that's what wins you the fight You know like that can hurt him uh he loves to dart to the to the left hook side, throw the left hook, or what he also likes to do is dart that way, making it look like it's a left hook, and then come all the way around with the with a high kick. We talked about it uh I actually remember we were breaking down a film of KaiCar France, and that was something I say that Kai Car France does something. Dip to the one side and throw the, the the high kick on the other side. Similar to what Juan Espina does, but he throws the overhand, not not a high kick. Uh he, He also has a mean streak in his fighting that he doesn't, I don't think he gets credit for because of his personality outside the kitchen. He's, he's the nicest guy, but case in point is Robert Whitaker is a guy that will throw the John Jones sidekick to the obliques, you know, and John don't, John don't, John Jones does it. And he's, he's viewed as, you know, Oh, it's John Jones. What evil human being. But Robert Whitaker does it. No one really notices. Um, (laughs) He generates power because he's heavy on his front foot. He's, he's like a boxer, but obviously this makes him vulnerable to leg kicks. Uh, I believe it was a leg kick that tore his ACL in the first Euro Romero. I don't remember if it was a leg kick, but he, he did tear his ACL in in his fight against Euro Romero, so that makes it even more concerning. Um, he does lose power because he he lunges, he over over-pursues uh, punches sometimes. It leaves him out of position. Uh, he's strong in the clinch, though, and this goes back to that mean streak in him that's there. He likes elbows in close. His biggest weakness, and this is what we talked about in the Jared Cannon fight, and it's could be a big problem against Calvin Gaslam, and it's so surprising for someone who's such a high level like Robert Whitaker to have this weakness, is he tries to even the score with every punch. When someone blasts him, he chases to get the punch back. And what I mean by that, like you punch me, I want to punch you back. And that's like uh, amateur thing in striking. I like I've I remember the last person I really kind of worked with. I I kept saying, her, "Like, calm down. You'll land the punches. Just flow." And we'd spar, and I hit him and I'd say, "Don't try to chase that back. I got it. Give it to me." And somehow I somehow I made my boxing into this three times today, but. <laughs> But uh, it's something he did And he I remember in the Second fight against Joe Romero, with times he should have been Recovering, he was Biting down on his mouthpiece trying to Land sh- shots back, and the perfect Example of it is Israel Asani fight Israel blasted him and then he starts coming forward And then gets himself knocked out for it uh, He's a good wrestler And it's good to see him finally start using his wrestling He used it against Till uh, Fairly recently uh, though I still don't think he uses it enough, but it's good to see that he knows he can go to it. And he, he's got legendary takedown defense. Uh, I mean, all you got to do is look at the Yoel Romero fight. Even more impressive, considering the first fight he had no ACL. Uh, if he's on top, he's got good top control, good ground and pound. Although we haven't really seen him in those positions that often. Now moving to Kelvin Gaslam. uh Motivation is always questionable to me with Kelvin Gaslam. You know, you never know where he is. Sometimes he misses weight. But for him to take a fight on short notice, that actually makes me more confident in him. Means that his diet was probably a little better than it should be. He was eager to get back in there. He was eager to get an opportunity against Robert Whitaker. Uh, that, to me, makes it seem like his his mind is in the right position, too. So I feel better about Kevin Gaslin based on that. Uh, but he's always so inconsistent. Like, it's... There's moments he looks like the Addis even though he lost to Adasanya, like how great of a performance that was. But then I think about the time where he almost knocked out Chris Wyman just to get out wrestled the rest of the fight. And I think he might I think he even got stopped at that fight. Or uh, I I don't remember. He might have got stopped. I, I I apologize if I said if that's not true. But he's a southpaw, he's got great hand speed, he hits very, very hard. I mean, look at the knockout of Michael Bisbang. Uh he's got that great overhand left. He kind of fights in bursts. He, um, and he also makes the mistake that Rob Whitaker does—that he he kind of reach overreaches for his shots. Uh, he can be gun shy sometimes too. Like all you gotta do is look at the Darren Till fight, where suddenly he wasn't throwing, and he Darren Till chewed up his legs, and Calvin Gaslam didn't respond. Uh, but his his chin is very solid. Like it's hard to to hurt Gaslam on the feet. I mean, you think about who's been able to go 25 minutes with Israel Asani. Now, obviously, he was hurt by Israel Asani. But to be able to have a mostly stand-up battle and hold your own against Israel Asani. There's only one guy to this date that can say that on the feet they did pretty well to hold their own, and that's Kelvin Gasoline. I was thinking about the Jack, Ray. Jack Ray's another fight. Like him and Jack Ray were blasting. Jack- and Jacare has power. That's one thing about him. Like Everything's about the grappler of Jack, Ray. Jack Ray's a power puncher. Uh, so as far as my prediction, I'm really excited about this fight. This is one of the, you know, other than a pay-per-view, this is one of the best, I think, main events we've had for a fight night that got me really excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gassam's going to hurt Whitaker. I expect that to happen. The question is, can Whitaker recover and still win? We've seen him do it since moving to middleweight against everyone but Adesanya. Brunson, Romero, Till. We already mentioned the list. Scanning air going on and on. I don't know if he's going to recover. I'm going to say he does. I'm going to say he does. I think around around round three is when he starts landing his jab. I think he slows the fight down, fights at much slower pace than he's going to want to fight at. Turn it into more of a point kickboxing match. And he starts picking him uh, picking apart with a jab. Now, I was picking Whitaker to win two years ago. And I'm not changing. So I'm going to pick him again. I picked six upsets tonight. That's half the card. I almost picked number seven. I'm not picking that. I'm going to take Whitaker by decision in a really good fight. And you actually convinced me that my last pick of fight tonight should not be my friend. So I'm going to switch... My pick to fight night being the main event, being the fight of the night, and I want to say the line I think is way off. I think that they got, I think I know he's over two to one favorite. I know you, gave, you just gave the line. I remember what you said, but Whitaker is like, I think it was like negative. What did you say? Negative. 250. 9 is two fifty. two fifty. Negative two fifty. Like that's he shouldn't be more than negative one fifty. Like I think he should be like negative one thirty. I think that line should be much much closer. So though I'm picking Whitaker to win, I want to point out that. I'm very close to picking Gastelum, so I think if Gastelum starches him in the first round, it would not surprise me at all. Ben, give me a pick.
0: All right. Uh, I'm with you that the line should be much closer on this one. And like you, I agonized before uh, coming up with my pick. And I'm much higher on Gastelum. Well, again, I couldn't have been much lower on Gastelum than I was, you know, three months ago. I picked Heinish to beat him, like, just outright. And it's because of the Heinisch fight, and it's not even that Heinisch is a world beater, and it's not that Gastelum unveiled you know some like he didn't break out like a question mark kick that he never had before. It's that he showed up, he was visibly in better shape than he had been, uh, he had no lapses in concentration like he did in the Hermanson fight where he literally just brain farted a fight away. He showed up and beat a guy he he was supposed to beat, and even even though I thought he lost the third round he won the last minute of the third round he was there not gassed still in the fight not coasting like he was he was best kevin gastelum and so i'm expecting that in this fight which is a much hot well i can't say much higher stakes because he might have been fighting for his job against Heinish, but is as high a stakes a fight as you can get it is very possibly a title eliminator i'm expecting best kevin kelvin gastelum to show up again my problem is that best Kelvin Gastelum's skill set does not match up with Robert Whitaker's, assuming Robert Whitaker is even regular Robert Whitaker, not, okay, my knees you know, ha- have finally given out or whatever was wrong in my gut, like that inguinal hernia and like bowel collapse that he had 12 hours away from a fight have not recurred. Even regular Robert Whitaker just doesn't match up well with Gastelum. Gastelum, you're right, he has fast hands. Gastelum has fast everything. Gastelum like because he's like a five foot nine middleweight who frankly like he looks a little on the soft side we we're not forced right into those cliches like if you put him in a video game and you know painted him with a texture of Abdul Razak al-Hassan, we'd be scrambling for things to call him other than athletic and explosive because speed and shocking power are what make his game go uh from the time he upset Uriah Hall at the tough finale even at his best moments until now. Um, yeah, he's a very good boxer and you explained that far better than I could. He's a very uh, very good offensive wrestler again you know he's a, a Juco standout wrestler and he's one of the ones whose wrestling has translated to MMA very well. but those are both things that don't match up well with with Robert Whitaker. like he's not going to take Whitaker down. No. T- to this day, I think part of what made Derek Brunson charge at Whitaker like a maniac is that he, was, he thought he wouldn't be able to take him down. So he was like, you know what? I'm just going to go out on my shield, see if I can just hit him. I'm the bigger, stronger guy. And I'd rather do that than just get pecked at for, you know, th- uh, for three rounds. I, uh, Whitaker's whole thing of you know, needing to get every punch back, I, I love that you encapsulated that because it, that never really struck me until the Adesanya fight because Adesanya was the first guy that made him pay for it. You know, Adesanya. Well, it, was, it was on that Conor McGregor thing of being two two moves ahead of your opponent, and yeah. not just outstriking him, but predicting his reactions to you outstriking him, and all of a sudden, he hits you with a punch you didn't see coming, and it's the first Poirier fight, or it's the Alvarez fight. Yeah. That was the level of thing he did to Whitaker. If Gastelum can tag Whitaker a couple times early, there's every possibility we see that, but I'm not picking it to happen. Uh, Whitaker, aside from that weird mental thing is you know he's a a smart fighter he generally fights to his best advantage he should know that his jab and his kicks and his outstanding takedown defense are pretty straightforward routes to a five-round decision victory over gasoline i'm picking him to take those but again you know Gaslam has the things that that he can do like if if Whitaker's top gear has slipped at all Gasol will be able to take him down we have a whole new fight Uh, again if Gasol tags him early and Whitaker responds like he did in the Adesanya fight it's anyone's guess what happens next that would make it even more likely to be fight of the night because hey who doesn't want to see like a a uh, a a wild striking match between two guys who should know better but I'm not picking that to happen even if it is the fight of the night and I am taking Whitaker by decision Any final thoughts on the card or the fight,
1: dude? As much junk we talk about the card, the breakdown of this main event has got me really excited to to watch the card now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued, and I'm thinking about this is this was a fight that I was intrigued two years ago, and obviously I'm not still as intrigued as was then. But I'm very, it's a good match, and I love that it's not a co-main event where you know we lost two rounds. I love that it's full five round fight. This is a good one.
0: It is a good one. It takes place this Saturday, April 20, sorry, April 17th. It is on ESPN. It is UFC Vegas 24. Uh enjoy the fights. Certainly right after the main event, check out either through the Sherdog sure front page or just go straight to the Sherdog sure YouTube page, the live recap and reactions with Keith and myself where we switch chairs He kind of runs the show, but we will take your questions and comments uh, through the live chat uh, between now and then. Have a great week, and thank you for listening.